good morning, afternoon, or evening, and welcome to the Bloody Disgusting Network. The following show is just horrifying. Beware. You're not cheating on your wife if you eat my lemon square. Your lemon squares taste like ass. And welcome back to Horror Queers. We're talking I fucking a plenty. We're talking the power of dance. And we're talking Dakota fucking Johnson and her terrible wig. And I'm Joe. And I'm Trace, and we're talking about how they're going to hollow me out and eat my cunt on a plate. Yeah, they sure, sure are. They don't they don't follow up on that promise, actually. But everyone, <laughs> we are discussing <laughs> Luca Guadagnino's remake-ish, eh, it's, a re- it's a remake, of <laughs> Dario Argento's Suspiria. Indeed, yeah. I feel like we have had this on the schedule since the day it was announced, and yet, uh, here we are. Like, four years later covering it. Yeah, no, this is a movie, I mean, I feel like we keep saying this about all these episodes we're doing this year, but it's like, we have had a lot of requests for this one, and so Mm -hmm. I think we just saved all these movies that we were getting so many requests for for our fourth year. (laughs) (laughs) Either that, or there's enough critical distance and time has passed between other podcasts doing them when they came out kind of fresh. Well, and also, to, to be completely frank, I needed a bit of a breather between my first viewing of this in 2018. And now, because, um, yeah, this was, um, this was an, a very interesting first time viewing for me. I don't know what it was like for you, but before we go into those stories, why don't we bring in our guest? Because we have someone who really, really, really likes this film. Everyone, you know him from our previous episodes on The X-Files, I Want to Believe, I Know What You Did Last Summer, and It Follows. Now he's returning for his annual guest spot on the show, which also happens to coincide with his birthday in a few days. Please welcome Ari Drew. Hello. Oh shit, the husband's in the house. (laughs) I'm back, and this is one that I very specifically requested in advance, just so you know Mm -hmm. that's how much. It's it's like my it follows for this year. I think we were gonna do this last year, but then we wound up, I don't know why we didn't do it, but we did it follows instead. Yeah, and then I think the minute that we finished recording it follows, you said, if you're doing Suspiria next year, I call it right now. (laughs) that sounds that sounds pretty accurate i feel like um when i knew that it was an option i i jumped right on this one which is fair 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 totally fair well okay okay so why don't we discuss this because i think we all have in a rarity for the three of us i think all three of us don't have the like the closest relationship with the original film right more or less i don't know ari how how do you feel about the original you're not a fan I so I first saw it when I was in I want to say I was in college, early in college or late in high school. After hearing a lot about it, and actually after reading an article in Entertainment Weekly that broke down uh, like all of these top however many scenes in horror films, and mm-hmm. I remember seeing um, you know the death with the beautiful color and everything <laughs> like that um, on the list, and I was like, oh, okay, I need to you know address this blind spot. And then I saw the film, and I didn't understand why it had such a the, the fanfare it did really um okay if i'm being honest it just did not land with me 
I didn't think it made a lot of sense, but I thought it was pretty. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I was kind of the same way. You know, I um, I was I was in high school when I saw the original and I had heard of it probably only through Bravo's 100 Scariest Movie Moments. But I, I came across it, um, the DVD at Best Buy. And on right on that cover was a quote from Entertainment Weekly that was like the the goriest kit opening kill ever put on film or whatever. And I was like, well, shit, I got to I got to watch this. Um, it was my first Italian horror film. I was not aware. I, I was not familiar with the dubbing aspect going mm-hmm. into it. So my child brain, of course, was like that bad. Right. But I also, yeah, it was kind of a thing where I was like, there's not really a story. I mean, there is a story here, but like it was, it was the epitome of style over substance. So it took me over a decade to warm to the original film. Right. Yeah, I feel like you're on the record as saying each time you watch it, you appreciate it a little bit more, but it's still not a personal favorite. Yeah, but I think you're the same too, Ari, right? I think I like it more than you do. It's. Mm-hmm. I remember we, we had a friend who brought over... Well, we watched the, either the Blu-ray. It was the Blu-ray. No, we watched the Blu-ray, and then we did the whole trilogy. Yeah, and then yeah, right. and during the trilogy, a friend brought over the 4K. No, mm. no, no. We haven't seen the 4K yet. What? No. Oh, that's, that's when we saw the Blu-ray. <laughs> we, yeah, yeah. We bought the 4K, but we haven't. Oh. So, I'm sorry. I have bought three copies of this movie. I have bought well, a He D- doesn't like that much. <laughs> <laughs> I have bought a DVD. I have bought a Blu-ray. And now I have a fucking $50 4K in my shelf. Woo! Completionist for the win. Yeah, well, I will say that whenever we saw the... I mean, again, in the context of the original trilogy, it is... I guess I would say it's the best one. I really do. I really like Inferno. But I think watching it just like knowing what it was again with some distance i think i want to say i'd seen it again before this and it had been some years and i liked it a little more because i knew what to expect but like Mm -hmm. having it in such beautiful quality and then i'm sure the 4k will you know will make me love it even more but i really just enjoyed the lot that time we watched it so Yes, I, I'm I'm the same, but I do think I enjoyed it a little more than you did. The last I mean, time. I've seen it now three, maybe four times in my life, and it's a thing where you know, it, it, look, it went from a one star film to currently <laughs> a three star film. So there you go. But but Joe, jo, what is your relationship with the original film? So I saw it in college, where I got exposure to a lot of different kinds of foreign films, and. It was the same, maybe slightly more positive than the two of you, where, yeah, the dubbing was an issue. I was really taken with the colors. I love Goblin and Mm -hmm. all of their Mm -hmm. scores, particularly the stuff they do with Argento. So for me, that was the big takeaway, because as you both know, I'm not a huge score person. And I was like, oh, my God, this score is so bombastic. Like, it bowled me over. And... I liked it, but yeah, it's a bit of a nonsensical plot, and I'm also a narrative boy, so it was like, ooh, there's some shiny things in here, but I wish it all came together a little bit more. But I know a lot of people who think that it's absolutely stunning and gorgeous and they love it, and I've read a bunch of things about it that have helped me to appreciate it more, but... It's, I mean, Italian films to North Americans are difficult at the best of times when you don't know what to expect. And then over time, I think you can gain an appreciation for them. But they're just really removed from like a Hollywood studio film. And sometimes that just feels like a bit of a barrier. Yeah, I grew up watching Demons and Demons 2, like as a right. very young child. So I, the dubbing didn't bother me as much because it's something I was used to. Knowing it was an, an Italian film, I kind of expected that that would happen. I think for me, it was the narrative. I just didn't think it it really like came together the way that, you know, if you look at like, a, even just like kind of synopses of the the three mothers trilogy, 
it makes more sense in written format than it mm-hmm. actually does than it actually plays out to me like there's a lot of detail that is just not there in the actual right. yeah. movie well, the, I, mean, I, said, I said it about this reading when we were watching it last night but I, I guess it would apply to the original film too it, it's very much a vibe you know if you're gonna get stuck questioning oh why did this why does this ballet school of, of witches just have a room full of barbed wire mm-hmm. you're not gonna have a lot of enjoyment get a lot of enjoyment no. out of the original film <laughs> you gotta go with it you just gotta go ahead with it yeah. i think this one it makes way much more narrative sense than oh the first one. oh no, no, for no. sure absolutely it's just like but i would say both of them are vibes because this movie like if you don't just kind of roll with it or you or you get lost in it like i don't think you're gonna enjoy it which I struggled with on a first watch of this film as well. Um, I, I liked this more on a first watch than I did the original, but it was a very much a thing where I was like, oh man, that was a lot to process in a two and a half hour time frame. Yeah. The first time I saw this movie, I don't know if we're going to jump into this right now Go ahead. or what, but um, I wanted, did we all see it at a festival? I did, but we did. I did as well. Yeah. Uh, Joe, did you did you see it? I had to wait until opening weekend. So I saw this at the very first screening I could when it went into sort of limited release, because I don't think this ever went wide. But I was terrified because I knew it was the kind of movie I didn't want to see with a general audience. <laughs> <laughs> that is fair. Yeah. I got lucky. I got to see it with a bunch of female friends here in Toronto, like part of my Salon Macabre group. And we were in a mostly empty theater because, of course, the movie also tanked. So in some ways, that was better for my viewing experience because we all just got to like sit and revel in it compared to like a rambunctious Friday night crowd of, you know, like the latest Conjuring movie where you're just Mm -hmm. like, oh, I hope this satisfies everybody. So for us, it was the secret screening at Fantastic Fest. And I'm putting secret Ooh. in quotes because it was one of... Everyone like, always knows. Yeah. Everyone yeah, always yeah, knows. Always, and yeah. so basically, everyone was like, it's a spirit, it's a spirit, it's a spirit. So yeah, we had a sold out crowd of... I mean, sold out. It was a full theater of Fantastic Fest attendees. So it was a good mm-hmm. audience. It's again, like... So, I, so I'll say too. So I hoped that I would like this. I thought the trailer was just like... The, oh, yeah. the marketing material was stunning. And I was mm-hmm. like, ooh, this feels like my vibe. We were in different theaters during that screening, I remember. And I don't ooh. think I was covering the fest that year which maybe helped because i wasn't sitting through hours and hours of movies in in advance of this two and a half hour (laughs) film that started Uh in the evening and i remember like i went to a concert right after and it was like i saw uh troy savon and kim petrus in concert like i rushed to the venue right after i finished this um but i i was like on such a high i loved it so much it was like exactly just like this wild feminine violent beautiful energy mm-hmm. that i needed that night so yeah i i had a really positive reaction on my first viewing and then you went to a like super queer pop. the gayest show ever the <laughs> yeah. queerest the queerest crowd it was so great yeah it was such a good night amazing well all right so this film is a bit of an anomaly because yeah i mean like we are remaking one of the most iconic horror films of all time but changing nearly everything about it and I just, I think that's fascinating because, you know, listeners, as you know, me and Joe and actually Ari are very, very, very pro remake. Yep. You know, done well. And I think this is a film that is definitely doing that, but not in the way that anyone would have expected. So Mm -hmm. let's go to how this came to be. So all the way back in 2007, uh, Luca Guadagnino was actually involved with this already. Um, He convinced Dario Argento and Daria Nicolodi, because we don't want to forget the fact that that film was essentially co-written by her, although she was kind of, you know, gotten the shaft. But yeah, they are the creators of the original Suspiria. Um, But he went to them and he convinced them to allow him to option a remake of this film. And again, this is 2007. (laughs) 
Um, he subsequently offered the project to David Gordon Green. Now, Boo. I know. <laughs> <laughs> that was really uh, my reaction, Joe. <laughs> well, but here's the thing, though. So this time period, uh, Pineapple Express is what, 2008? Uh, mm-hmm. I was in college. Yeah, I'm trying to think of what year. Somewhere uh, around there. Yeah. yeah, I was a junior or senior in college. So it's 2008, 2009. I think it was 2008. So had he done this remake of Suspiria, which, with, by the way, a cast of Isabel Huppert, Janet McTeer, and Isabel Fuhrman? Question mark? Um, uh, I could have been down watch. with that, though. Yeah. Totally would watch it, but we might have not gotten Pineapple Express. Well, I'm fine with that. <laughs> no, I love Pineapple Express. I okay. adore I And I've recently, like, reconnected. I used to watch it a ton in college and, and afterwards, but yeah, during the pandemic, I put it on way too much for Trace's Joe, liking. In the past, in the past six months, he's put it on three times. Oh, okay. way more than that, but th- three that you know of. <laughs> when Trace goes to bed and Ari's up late, Pineapple Express. Oh yeah, it's happened. Much. It's happened. It's definitely one of those things. But um, anyway, so Green's take was going to be a more straightforward remake. You know, we weren't going to de- do all the deviations that the film we eventually got would take. It was eventually scrapped because of financing conflicts, but Green mm. did co-write a script with his sound designer, so like it was ready to go. I seem to remember reports too of Natalie Portman being like involved in some shape, way, or form, but I wonder if like I don't know, uh, she ended up doing Black Swan, so that was her Suspiria. Yeah. <laughs> she was like, Well, this fell apart. I guess I'll do the other ballet horror movie. <laughs> <laughs> Which I also love. Yeah, that's great. Ah, love, love this one. Still haven't covered it. Future one day, episode. One day. I know. One day. So flash forward seven years, because I guess, you know, after that tanked, people were like, well, fuck it. No one's going to remake Suspiria anymore. At the 72nd Venice Film Festival, Guadagnino announces his own plans to direct a remake of Suspiria. And again, I'm using air quotes here because he doesn't even call it that. With the four main actors in his film, A Bigger Splash, which had premiered at that same festival. And these actors were Dakota Johnson... Tilda Swinton, Ray Fiennes, and Matthias Schoenarts. And he said the film's main theme would be the uncompromising force of motherhood. It wasn't going to be a remake, but an homage to the powerful emotion he felt when he watched the original film. Obviously, those four actors did not all come across. Uh, We just got the female actors, but this would be his fifth collaboration with Tilda Swinton, which I had no idea. Oh, yeah. Apparently, he calls her his muse. I mean, not surprising, right? She can do anything. I get it. Sure. <laughs> she tries to do everything in this movie, so <laughs> <laughs> that she does. Oh, we'll talk about the three roles, yes. <sighs> you know, it's so funny. Well, yeah, you know what? We'll talk about it. It's fine. So um Tilda Swin is the three mothers. She's all three <laughs> right. secretly. That's that's the big twist here. Honestly, if we ever get um Inferno or whatever we're gonna get, uh, it's Mother Tenebrarum next. Uh uh-huh. if we if we just get put Swinton in that role, like by all fucking I things. was thinking about that and I would really love that. But anyway, that's jumping the gun. I know. Because <laughs> Joe, you have seen inferno or mother of tears have you i have not no inferno is very much i would say similarly tone wise Mm -hmm. to the original film it's still a little bit um like nonsensical i want to say it's not as stylized but Mm -hmm. there's it does have its own unique vibe which i like yeah but mother of tears is just a hot garbage mess but like it's comedy it's pure comedy yeah (laughs) but not not intentionally so (laughs) yes not not in an intentional way i did think even as uh when we get to the mother marcos reveal in this movie i was like oh man she's got little baby hands all over and then i immediately (laughs) thought of mother of tears and that scene that everybody always references oh the baby uh-huh oh god the baby is <laughs> we watched so that funny. scene a lot i think we sometimes. i think oh, yes yeah, listeners anyway. <laughs> <laughs> if you haven't seen mother of tears um don't don't see that horrible movie but do because it's really funny <laughs> do google mother of tears baby, baby. scene or something <laughs> yeah exactly 
Um, okay, so Guadagnino pulls on American writer David Kajganich to write his remake of Suspiria because he had also written A Bigger Splash. He would also go on to develop the British television series The Terror and do its first season, which I saw and really liked. I heard the second season wasn't good, but I don't think he was involved with that season. He is not. The second season is good. It's just incredibly different. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. Interestingly enough, though, and this is what I, I talk about, like, our horror inner circles here. Kajganich admitted that he was not a fan of the original film because he isn't a fan of the horror genre, saying, Ugh. I know. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I ha- yeah. <laughs> anyway, go ahead. Sorry. No, so he, he, but he says, you know, I don't like the horror genre because um, it, it starts to lose me when it's no longer about um, real people in the real world. So he wanted to take this this practical approach to the premise of the original film, which of course is, you know, about a ballet school that's run by a coven of witches, and say, well, what would this be like if it actually happened? And giving, and he wanted to give this remake a sense of realism that, as we all know, the original doesn't really have. Yeah, it works when you say it that way. When you just read the quote, I'm like, I roll central. And I really wish that screenwriters, you know, in a certain way, it's good to be candid, but also shut the fuck up and maybe watch more horror. I have that same reaction. Like, even when I was, when we were doing the research on this and I was seeing that quote, I just get so tired of people like feeling like they have to establish like, well, I don't really like horror. I mean, again, mm-hmm. it is very, it is that ivory towery kind of, um, well, you I think know, this is where we get to elevate it, right? Like this, yes, these yeah. kinds of sentiments are why people feel the need to say, "Oh, well, it's not a traditional horror film; it's elevated." And you're just yeah, like, that, "Or yeah. it's all horror." Well, like I, Orphan First Kill is the exact same as Suspiria; they're just in two <laughs> very different realms, right? That's all I, horror. You're right. But I, here's the thing, though. So I'm not even opposed to the idea of someone saying, "I don't like horror," but the way, yeah, the way that this is delivered is is the typical horror is a lesser genre than the rest because of X X and X. I actually like the idea of people not involved with horror or don't, that don't have really a track record of making horror doing horror because we might get something like this, which yeah. is a really mm-hmm. interesting perspective. For sure, we've seen a lot of people move over. It's just more where it's like, okay, I'm going to try to do something a little bit more my speed. You don't have to shit on an entire genre exactly yeah and i also think like it it kind of speaks to the the cinematic education of some people because i'm kind of like okay well have you never seen like rosemary's baby or that's literally where i thought i was like that movie's about the devil and yet it is incredibly realistic and grounded exactly and it's like um you know the themes in a lot of these movies like we even rewatched the exorcist kind of recently and at one point i think we both were like this feels like the the hereditary of its time like just the way that it unfolds it's so bleak i just feel like when people say that i kind of just want to be like listen i have a whole list of movies that i wish (laughs) you would watch first (laughs) let me program a night for you and then you can talk to me about it in the morning exactly So, okay, a really important aspect of this film is its setting and the and the things going on in Germany at, in 1977, which I will admit that this was my biggest hurdle on a first watch. I was very much like a, I mean, I'm an American, right? So I don't know a lot of German history, especially um, in Germany post-World War II. And this film is very much steeped in that while not really hand-holding you through all of the uh, historical events. (laughs) Yeah, that's putting it mildly. There's a lot of people who walked out of this being like, what the shit was all this RAF stuff? Yeah, so let's go into that. So yes, um, Kajganich chose to set the film in Berlin in 1977, the year the original film was released. And this was going to be during a series of terrorist events known as the German Autumn. Now, 
Historical context. Let's start with this. Yes, the Red Army Faction, or RAF. They were a communist, anti-imperialist, and urban guerrilla group engaged in armed resistance against what they deemed to be a fascist state. And they were motivated by leftist political concerns and the perceived failure of their parents' generation to confront Germany's Nazi past. And they played a big part in this German autumn, which was a series of events in 1977 associated with the following things. So... We start in April of 77, and we have Siegfried Buback, the Attorney General of West Germany. He is shot and killed in an ambush whilst traveling. Four of the Red Army faction members were formally charged and prosecuted in connection with his murder. So it kind of kicks things off. The next event, July of 77, we have the failed kidnapping of banker Jürgen Ponto by the Red Army faction, but that resulted in his murder. So someone fucked up and accidentally killed him when they weren't supposed to. September of 77, so... These next two things and the only two things left in this event, they're kind of tied hand in hand. But in September, we have the kidnapping and eventual murder of industrialist, businessman, and former Nazi Hans Martin Schleier. Um, and again, Red Army Faction doing all this. Schleier was abducted and held prisoner and was forced to appeal to the center-left West German government under Helmut Schmidt, the Chancellor of West Germany. For the then-imprisoned first generation of Red Army Faction members to be exchanged for him. So again, we have... There's like four different generations of RAF, but the first mm -hmm. one, a bunch of them were, were um, arrested and they were in prison. So they're like, cool, we're going to kidnap this uh, ex-Nazi guy and trade him for the prisoners. Right, which is a pretty common sort of terrorist tactic, right? Like, we want money and we want the release of these things and also flies to a non-extradition place. Yes, exactly. So, while they have him... We have the hijacking of the Lufthansa Flight 181, also known as the Lenschut by the Red Army Faction. And um, this is with the help of the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine. So we're even getting into that kind of territory here. But they execute the pilot, they land in the capital of Somalia, and they demanded the release of 10 Red Army Faction members detained at the Stamheim prison, plus two Palestinian compatriots held in Turkey, and... <laughs> 15 million US dollars in exchange for the hostages. Sure. Just a few things. Small potatoes. Just, just a little bit. After political negotiations with the Somali leader Sayyad Barre, the West German government was granted permission to assault the plane. And they did just that. Only one of the hijackers survived. But on the same night, three of the RAF members imprisoned at the Stamheim prison were found dead in their cells. Because of this, the people who had kidnapped Mr. Schleier executed his ass and of course there were also conspiracies that the raf members who died by suicide yes that they had actually been killed by the guards and sort of like retaliation although apparently there's videos and documentation that suggests that they had always kind of planned it this way yeah but again like it's it, it, it's all conspiracies right all it's it all is. speculation because no one knows but i think the official record was they died by suicide which right I mean, you could even read that into not really a suicide bomber, but like, yeah, suicide terrorists are like, hey, if we do this, then we'll mm -hmm. kill this other guy we have hostage. Right. It causes outrage. It furthers their cause and so on. Exactly. They're, that's a much better way of saying what I was trying to say. <laughs> <laughs> you got it. You got it. So this guy gets executed and this all happens on October 18th. And this is pretty much the end of the German autumn. So... Suspiria begins shortly after the hijacking of the Landschut uh, in order to hint at the larger thematic concerns, specifically the response of the youth of the era to the denial by their parents and grandparents' generations of German culpability in World War II. Mm -hmm. 
Kajganich used the political tumult of the time as a means of contextualizing the central plot surrounding the Marcos Dance Academy, where an American is getting her education in a way in how a modern kind of fascism might look within the structural organization or the hierarchy yeah. of this dance academy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I saw a number of reviews who sort of link the the sort of rise of power in Germany. So the things that we're seeing and hearing on the news uh, to the way that the power play is happening within the dance academy. So they're meant to parallel each other. And well, I can definitely appreciate people saying, well, it doesn't feel like it's well integrated or it feels like it detracts from the things happening at the dance academy. It's harder to make that argument once you actually know the background of what's happening. Like, it is a very, very deliberate decision. I just think on a first watch, when you don't really know what to make of it, or if you don't know the history, it does feel like a subplot that is detracting. Yeah, that's actually one thing, too. The more I've watched this, the more I've appreciated it. How the themes are kind of interwoven across, Mm -hmm. like, the historical context and what's going on in the Academy and what's going on uh, with the psychiatrist and his story and with his wife. And so I think for me, it just works more and more every time. But I'm also someone who loved this the first time. So I'd be I was willing to go back. Well, right. No, but, uh, <laughs> Joe, I feel like we just talked about something recently, though, we're we're talking about a foreign film. And it's like, yeah, like, uh, there are a lot of things in foreign films that deal with, you know, existing states of affairs or history with their country. And they're not always going to spell that out for you because they're not mm-hmm. always geared towards American audiences. So if you don't know that going in, yeah, you're going to miss out on some, maybe it was stage fright actually. Yeah. It's kind of, I would say like, uh, like a Serbian film is one that I think, which I know that people, you know, have reactions to that, but, mm-hmm. uh, so like, um, I like French extremism too. You know? Oh yeah, yeah, for yes. sure. Yeah. The number of people who just want to say, Oh, they're really violent films. And then you dig into the history of France and you're like, Oh, never mind. I spoke too soon. So what you're saying is you want to cover a Serbian film at some point. Oh my god! I've actually never seen it. <laughs> I love it. I I I, I, I I like it, quote unquote. But honestly, it's been so long since we've seen it that I I need to watch it again because it's just been so long. Yeah, since I've, I've seen it. it a few times. I still really like it. Based on the last watch, I I think it does a lot. But that's not what this is about. Con- <laughs> content warnings for everything in case yeah. you're like, What's oh yeah, Serbian film. Yeah, especially yeah. yeah anyone who's like ever taken my um, recommendations like to see films like Watcher, do not watch a Serbian film just based on <laughs> that. Please do some research. <laughs> Yeah, it's like, hey, did you enjoy the sadness? Then you may enjoy a Serbian film. Yeah, yeah, yeah maybe, yeah. maybe. <laughs> that's be- that's a better pairing. Yeah. yeah, probably so. Okay, so principal photography begins on Suspiria on October thirty first, twenty sixteen. How appropriate. Hmm. With a production budget of twenty million dollars, and I will tell say right now what I told Ari last night about five times. I cannot believe a studio gave this movie $20 million. Not because it's bad, but because this is a niche movie. A two mm-hmm. and a half hour long horror remake steeped in German history. And it is a slow burn. Oh, and it's bizarre and surreal. <laughs> and I uh, to that end, like, so my, my best friend... Um, She's a musician, and she oh she's been on the show, uh, Primo. Oh, Primo, yeah, right, yeah. Um, Primo the alien. So she likes to subject her husband to horror films pretty often. <laughs> He's not a big movie watcher, and no. she she took him to see this in the theaters, <gasps> and I, just because I told her how much I loved it, and I thought she would, you know, that it would be the kind of thing that she'd be into, right? But I didn't know she would take him. <laughs> she was like, he he tells me to this day like that movie. I don't even know <laughs> what the hell was happening in that. <laughs> Don't ever take me to a movie like that again. <laughs> oh, oh but gosh. see, when we get into the plot, though, I mean, like, again, the, 
this is a movie where I kept being like, what the fuck is going on in this movie? Like, what is going on? And watching it like, only for the second time in my life last night, I was like, oh, everything's so clear now. Like, it, it, mm-hmm. everything makes total sense. <laughs> yeah, I think it's just so dense and overwhelming the first time. And especially if you do have a certain familiarity with the original, mm-hmm. you go into this thinking, okay, it's a remake. I know what to expect. And even though the marketing made it very clear it's going to look different, I think we all thought, okay, room of barbed wire, you know, we're going to like do the counting of the steps and finding a secret passage and this kind of stuff. And some of these things do come to pass, but almost immediately it's so evident this film is really doing its own thing and it's not content to hold your hand like it's not super complicated but on that first watch it's so overwhelming it's easy to get lost in all the detail or it's so engaging and (laughs) so absorbing that it's easy to just kind of like fall in love with like the for Mm -hmm. me like the world and the energy that it builds i think is so captivating like the Mm -hmm. first time i saw it it was kind of i want to say this was when did raw come out 2016 okay so previously at a festival i had to say i had a similar experience when i saw raw because i saw it with um with our friend jenny and i and we both loved it and it was just one of those experiences where you see a movie and it's that first time you have a reaction Mm -hmm. and it's such a positive reaction and you're so like you get that high right yeah you're like i got to experience that for the first time i've missed that like it doesn't Mm -hmm. happen that often it doesn't happen, you know, like multiple times a year. It's like you find that one thing that really, really gets you. And this did that for me. And so, yeah, I, it, it's a thing, too, whenever folks would be like, that movie's two and a half hours long. And I'd be like, yeah, what of it? I will watch a five hour <laughs> version of this fucking movie. <laughs> and I will say this, though, this viewing last night flew behind for me. Like, it didn't oh, feel yeah. like two and a half hours long. No. <laughs> I find when we get into about part five, I start to feel the time a little Mm -hmm. bit. But then you also know that you're about to go into part six and you're just like, oh, act act six, baby. Bring it on. Isn't part five, though, the dance, dance, which I love. Oh, true. Yeah. But but, but, but I I know what you're saying, Joe, because I felt it around the exact same time because I I think we paused at some point and I was like, oh, look, we're 45 minutes in. Shit. Like, I I feel like nothing's happened yet. And it's great. Mm -hmm. Um, but no, you're right. It is like r- shortly before that dance where you're like, okay, movie, let's um, let's go. And then I, the dance. Yeah, because that's kind of more where Susie is kind of coming into her, like mm-hmm. her role in the mm-hmm. Academy. And I think that that they do play that a little bit slow, like a slow build more yeah. so. And then, but I feel like, yeah, we also get um, the psychiatrist. What is his name again? I, I Klemper. Klemper. Jesus, I will never remember that. Um, Klemper, like his whole story, I feel like that maybe gets his involvement gets a little more. Uh, pronounce and yes. anytime that that's happening i found myself kind of like tuning out a little bit mm-hmm. now i kind of, i'm into it more but initially yeah 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 well we'll get into him in a bit <laughs> <laughs> so shooting lasts for two months concluding in december of that same year in, in the, ba- the the ballet school uh while the remainder of principal photography was finished in march of 2017 as they kind of went around at different spot, uh, locations to film the filming conditions at the ballet school, which were at a hotel, by the way, uh, were apparently not that great. Uh, it was, sh- uh, as I said, it was shot in the winter months, but the hotel was inefficiently heated with gasoline space heaters because it had been abandoned for several decades. <laughs> it had also been adorned with cellular towers on the rooftop, giving out a constant signal from the antennas that made the cast and crew very weak and tired, but also... There was so much electricity pulsating through the building that everyone was shocking each other. Which is good, because nobody touches anyone in this movie, ever. (laughs) (laughs) 
I was like, that is like a horror movie in and of itself. They should make a film about that. Well, 100%, I, right? I know, I know Dakota Johnson has that buzz quote where she was like, she said, like, the filming of this movie fucked her up. She had to go to therapy for a while. And of course, it got misconstrued because people were like, oh my God, what they do to her? She goes, no, 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 no. It was just a very like mentally mm-hmm. taxing film to work on <laughs> well like probably like physiologically so too i mean it's like it's all those things you know it's like mm-hmm. the environment that they were into and then like the content and then the fact that like these people were dancing their asses off well and on that note actually so i mean for dance choreography in the film you know they use contemporary dance as a central influence um german expressionist dancers mary wigman and pina bausch were specific influences on the on Kajganich's conceptualization of the dance routines so i actually love that um we don't just have a choreographer working on this but kajganish was actively thinking of the choreography of the dance numbers in his script which i kind of want to read that to see how that reads like how much how many notes did he have on this mm-hmm. yeah i wonder how visual this was too because everything that i know of guadagnino is that he's very much like an image based kind of person. So I imagine that that script was kind of littered with visual references as well. Like, I wonder if that's part of the reason that the script ends up coming together so well is like, it's a marriage of two really well put together minds. Yeah. I would, I would say that I feel like I feel that like, it feels like a scenario where you had a script that was very much kind of written with the director in mind with, in like, with the visuals in mind, mm-hmm. which is not always the case when you write a script. And so I think, um, or at least like not to the level of detail, because sometimes you don't want to put that much, you know, as much detail in a script, knowing that directors take things in their own direction, mm-hmm. sometimes or, produ- or producers or well, editors. But I think because directors nor- normally, in my experience with all the directors that I know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Please introduce me to them. <laughs> no, they, they, they don't like that because like, no, it's my movie. Like your right. script is the bones. However, because Guadagnino and Kajiganich had already worked together on a bigger splash, I wonder mm-hmm. if they already had like a really collaborative relationship to where they, they knew what each of them was going to do. Yeah. Right. No, that's kind of the, that's kind of what I was getting to yeah. is I feel like that this is a scenario where you can tell for me that the, at least I could, that the relationship was so strong that they were really on, on the same wave. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But um, aside from Dakota Johnson and Mia Goth, all of the actresses in the on-screen dance scenes were professional dancers. Um, however, Johnson trained extensively. Now, I have two years, some reports say one. Nevertheless, a long fucking time. She trained for at least a year leading up to the shoot to achieve the body type and technique of a dancer, spending two hours each day training at a dance studio in Vancouver while filming Fifty Shades Freed, because what else was she going to do? Mm. Act in that movie? <laughs> wow. <laughs> Work? <laughs> no shit. I, I haven't seen the second or third one. I think the first one's fine, but... It's like trashy fun. I yeah. like I like yeah. a good, like, sexy thriller, even though it's not that thrilling. It's not that thrilling. <laughs> yeah. I just like Jamie Dornan. <laughs> yeah. I mean, really, if you want to talk about, like, a sexy thriller... She was prepping for this fucking movie, which has like this is way probably sexier. more BDSM, yeah, than <laughs> way Shades. sexier than any of the Fifty Shades. My God, yeah. but I, lo- I love like you know when you see the MPA ratings and it has like the ra- all the reasons it's rated R or whatever. This one's like a paragraph. Mm-hmm. <laughs> wait, 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 I have this. Hold on. Wait, it is rated R for disturbing content involving ritualistic violence bloody images and graphic nudity and for some language including sexual references also baby arm sure. yeah baby right. arm uh leaking body juices <laughs> lots of juices. oh yeah <sighs> so much body juices Ugh. 
This is a wet, horny movie. It's so good. (laughs) (laughs) But um, Johnson trained in various forms of dance, ranging from ballet to contemporary dance. She studied the work of Wigman, listened to various musical acts of the 70s, like The Carpenters, Jefferson Airplane, and Nina Simone. Artists she felt would have informed her character's instinctive movements in the film. Oh, that's fun. I mean, sure, except she's also meant to be a Mennonite who wouldn't have had exposure to any of those things. <laughs> yeah, but she's a bad Mennonite, Joe. Like, this is she's, true. She's obviously she like hitchhikes. drawn to the dark side. Well, she does hitchhike and no, she gets in trouble. And she doesn't give a fuck. I want to talk about that too, actually. Uh, let me be mad now because I, 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 in some of the the analyses of this film, I wasn't seeing a lot of of the religion brought up. But Mm-mm. it's interesting because she does leave one religion and essentially joins another one. A hundred percent. Yeah, it's a religion or a cult. And Klemper even says that he equates what's happening yes. at the school with religion. Oh, my God. Oh, I have that line, too. It's a really I, I... oh, the line's really good about the um, like delusion. If you, delu- if you mm-hmm. can share what you get, share your delusion, it's religion or something. Yeah, we'll get to it. That's good. Um, OK, so like its predecessor, Suspiria was shot on 35 millimeter film stock. And to achieve a 1970s style effect, the film uses slow motion and numerous camera zooms typical of the period, um, including the recurrent use of snap zooms. Yes, fucking love them. Well, and it was so interesting because I was like, this is a very like deliberate and distinct way of mm-hmm. using this camera. You see the zooms a lot more in the first half, mm-hmm. and then you get those slow motion. And I'm going to say up front, I don't like the blur effects that are in the last half of this movie. I know why they're there. I like. Yeah. I don't like the way. I mean, they are visually unappealing to my eyes. <laughs> they. I think they're they're so like tonally on point in how they put you in this nightmare, and it's like mm. a surreal experience that's like dizzying and i really i really like and, that and maybe that's the, maybe that's why i don't like because it, it is getting the job done and i'm like no right. i don't like seeing that <laughs> yeah that's fair i mean that's how i feel when i watch like a movie like climax like that is like mm. visually like trying to represent this anxiety and this trip essentially right. and you're just like oh i don't like feeling this right now yeah i find it works best when uh Susie is getting ready for the dinner and she's kind of like coming into Suspiriarum and I like it less when death is going around because then it kind of feels like oh we have hit the 20 million dollar budget yes! and now we're trying to make it work that's and maybe that's not the case but that is the vibe I got as well I see though. I don't feel that way because I feel like that movie is like an updated equivalent of the gore and what they do in the original and to okay. me it, it, it like it just works better for me because of the context it makes more it's more earned here mm-hmm. I think okay. mm-hmm. and the the kind of ridiculous over the top like in the last scene it's there are times over and again during that the last sequence that I'm just mm-hmm. like, oh, fuck. Oh, fuck. And then I'm just like laughing because I just love it. I'm oh. just like, this is so fucking nuts. And they're doing exactly what they should be doing. At a certain point. Yes. I mean, it's just like it's kind of hilarious. Everything that's happening here. But and I, I will say, Joe, because, you know, do you know the other movie that uses this kind of effect? And I do think it's horrible in that movie. Hmm. Resident Evil Apocalypse. Oh Jesus Christ! <laughs> who, who, then, who is thinking of that? No, today it is, uh, clearly I am. Because it, it, it is the only movie in that film franchise with this director. Right, he was that like, uses oh, a terrible technique. Yes, every time the zombies appear, he uses a technique. And I'm like, why? Are That's we the doing one I don't this? like. Right, the yeah, second one. Yeah, it's the bad one. It's the oh, it two. is the bad one. I'm sorry to the people out there that really want to. No, know, it's fine. They're have wrong. An argument We've about all this. accepted this. <laughs> you know what you did, you people. <laughs> Yes. So, uh, Joe, as you said, in contrast to the original, uh, Guadagnino's Suspiria uses primary colors sparingly. Uh, he stated that he and his cinematographer Sayambu Muktipram went for a different take because Argento and his cinematographer's extremely expressionistic way of decoding horror with these colors 
influenced filmmakers for so long that everything mm-hmm. that could have been said through that style had been said. And I love I that. I agree. Yeah. Well, do you know what it reminds me of? I love that full stop. It reminds me of Texas Chainsaw. Yes, Texas Chainsaw, remake. yes. There we go. <laughs> Listeners, okay. if you didn't hear our ep- our Patreon episode on Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the remake, um, A, go listen to it. But if you didn't know, that film sh- shares the same cinematographer, Daniel Pearl, as the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Mm-hmm. So all these people, you know, were like, oh, like this new one doesn't look good because it's too chic and shiny and like uh, it doesn't have like that grainy effect that makes you feel gross. And... That was intentional because he said, well, I already shot this movie one way. Why would I want to do it the same way again? Yeah. And that's kind of that. I think that's a good jumping off point for just uh, the argument that I personally have for like horror remakes. Like if you can if you can do something different, say something different with it, recontextualize it like in the Mm -hmm. modern time, visually just approach it with like a different artistic vision in mind. I'm all for it. Like I've seen, you know, I, I feel like there's maybe a couple of horror remakes that I can that I think are fine that are basically just like the copy paste. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but I really, the ones I love are the ones that they kind of just do their own thing. And, and this almost like this film almost feels like it is the very long novel <laughs> that the first film was like called from to me. Like, right. it's like if someone took like all of this detail and all of this, like minutia, as far as like the background and the themes and then like synthesized it into something that was a little more streamlined. That's how the original feels compared to this to me, which I think is like probably like total blasphemy to people. So don't kill me. <laughs> well, but no, but I, I will say that I, I remember. I remember when it first got announced on Bloody Disgusting. Like you know, they, they had started pre-production on the film, and Guadagnino did an interview where he said, "Like yeah, we're not doing primary colors. We're we're right. going to make this muted color palette." And people flipped. Yes, and I, but to me, I was like, "Oh, like, thank you. You have my attention now because this yeah. shows that you were trying to do something actively different with this material." But that's where we get into this whole thing with specifically horror fans, where it's like. You can do a copy-paste hack job. You can do Gus Van Sant's Psycho. You can do Friday the 13th mm-hmm. where it's like, you know, not the same, but it is. Or you can do this and you're not going to make anyone happy. Yeah, more or less. The lesson for me to be taken away is very much what Ari just said, right? Like, if you have a specific point of view, if you want to do something different, I think one of the other reasons that sequel, remake, prequel, whatevers, <laughs> I think the reason that they often get a bad rap is because people feel like they're just cash grabs right like you're grabbing onto an ip that's probably been sitting dormant for a while and saying how can we continue to make money off of this whereas here it's yes we're obviously doing that we're paying homage in a couple of different places but also we're looking to do a companion piece a compliment Mm -hmm. a homage be with it what you will but like this is clearly a distinct vision in it just happens to be called suspiria it's just the whole cash grab thing i mean like we've talked about this everything is a cash grab everything's a cash grab stop pretending like people don't want to make fucking money yes it's art but also they need to make money but we know that yeah (laughs) money as much as we want to believe that everyone makes film just because they love it and they 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 are artistes that is unfortunate not the case (laughs) i mean i'll say that like you know when it comes down to like screenwriters and directors like you're more likely to find uh impassioned people in those jobs Mm -hmm. that really really want to like make art that's you know maintains their artistic integrity that is the vision that they want um but again you know we're dealing with studios and massive systems that have been kind of fucked up and how they work for a while and a lot of it just has to do with their concern with how much money they can make so i do get the argument and also I love the idea of of someone being given this opportunity to tell a story that's familiar 
in their own way and Mm -hmm. or with a twist or you know something that can just make it fresh again and i think this does that for me right if that wasn't enough the other thing that was going to change was the score for this film so we've Mm -hmm. already mentioned goblin's bombastic score very catchy tunes by the way love them well we're gonna swap that out for a more muted score from radiohead singer tom york uh I don't know why you're laughing because I fucking love Tom no, York and Radiohead. I'm not. Well, I, I I could not tell you a single Radiohead. So I don't know who Tom York is. <laughs> of course I, you can. You know, uh, creep. I've seen creep at karaoke. Sure. Yes, that sounds accurate. I wasn't laughing though with the fact that he's bad, but more so the fact that you know again, it's just you t- such a pivot. It's right? a real swerve. Yeah, it's yeah. a swerve. Yeah. And you know, so you have these two, the two most iconic things about the original film. Mm-hmm. They're changing in this one. Yeah. <laughs> which is which I think is kind of great because it's kind of like you know whenever someone does something different in a franchise and and there's like a film in like you know a number of you know maybe number six or something that just really Mm -hmm. turns turns a corner yeah initially there's a lot there always tends to be outrage like from people who are just purists they just want the same thing they Mm -hmm. just want the familiar but i think that it's like replacing i think it's so ballsy in the best way to replace like the most memorable things about the original without Mm -hmm. like necessarily changing the story or or whatever but um yeah because it really does kind of serve as its own vibe like it really stands on its own tom york's score is beautiful there's a lot of songs in there that remind me of like really old radiohead like Mm -hmm. okay computer oh god what is the my favorite one no no okay computer is my favorite one that album (laughs) um a lot of it reminds me of that kid a which is the album Right. right before that it just like kind of has this really somber vibe that's a little bit like menacing too well Mm -hmm. that fits this movie perfectly oh yeah so suspiria had its world premiere at the 75th venice international film festival this is three years after guadagnino announced it at that film festival he didn't announce it as a he just said a movie like or did he have a title i know he he said so he was premiering a bigger splash and he said oh yeah i'm doing a suspiria remake Oh, okay. So it premiered at the Venice International Film Festival on September 1st, 2018. Uh, it opened in a limited release in Los Angeles and New York on October 26th, 2018, where it grossed about $180,000. And this was an average of $89,000 per screen, the highest screen mm-hmm. average box office launch of the year that year. Mm. Yeah, because usually if you can do about 50000 mm-hmm. in your sort of like mini launch, that's considered a very good number. Yeah, and this was, I mean, I'm sure that Amazon Studios was getting really excited about this. Oh my god, we're going to make so much money. Well, okay. <laughs> but also, we have no release strategy for this film, and we don't actually want to market it. That's, okay. Thank th- you. No, that's the thing. So, uh, Joe, you mentioned before, you were like, I don't think it went very wide. No, the widest this movie went was like 311 theaters. And so... Like, fuck off. You think you're going to make $20 million off 300 theaters? What are you doing? That's not even a platform release. And people keep asking Guadagnino about, oh, you're going to do this to the, the other two mothers? And he's like, no, oh, well, like, this this tanked and i was like but there was no way there was Mm-mm. no way this movie was gonna recoup 20 million dollars yeah it was set up to fail in that regard and but this is the thing too that really about bo- that will bother me and I, I this is a good time to talk about it because this is a movie that i do think is a really like quality film to be to to be in the place of this argument so like mm-hmm. this whole idea of like talking to folks uh, there are some people that randomly i'll talk to them about a movie and that they haven't seen they're like oh didn't that flop and right. I'm like, I don't give a fuck. Like this <laughs> like, movie is I'm still really telling you to watch good. It. <laughs> yeah, it's really good just because it was not put in front of as many people as it should have been put in front of. And the mm-hmm. studio didn't necessarily do its job to make sure that people knew about it and knew what it was. 
to market it appropriately, whatever the case was. It's not like a ding against the movie's quality. So I, I really want to like break that association. It's, a stigma, it's right? really annoying and it's really inaccurate because it really like, I think it really um, cuts a lot of like indie filmmakers and a lot of like folks who do like subversive art and stuff that's not really easily consumed by like, you know, the major studio system. Mm -hmm. It really kind of cuts it off of the knees. Like, it never has a chance. And then people start associating flopping, you know, theatrically with... With a bad movie. With quality. And it's just yeah. not fair. To be fair, and, like, I'm, I'm not trying to cut Amazon any slack here, but, like, I I could just see a studio exec watching this movie and being like, how the fuck are we going to market <laughs> I think oh, was See, I the... so strongly disagree because I think their marketing was actually quite good mm -hmm. from what we saw of it. So do you want to hear my conspiracy theory yes. not related to the RAF? Always. I think that Amazon was seeing what Netflix was doing and they thought we're going to start gobbling up movies and driving subscriptions to Amazon Prime. Mm. So I don't think they ever wanted this movie to be wide in theaters. I think they were looking at their platform and subscriptions. That actually might be accurate and that makes sense because i do remember it wasn't this one of the first ones acquired by amazon like and released in this way like yeah, yeah and like it was around this time they were starting to do a lot because they grabbed this terrible matt damon movie downsize which is oh. a legitimate piece of shit movie but like that movie they didn't really support and you're like wait so you've got you know luca here who's literally coming off oscar nominated film which receive rapturous reviews you've got matt damon one of the arguably like biggest movie stars like they were they were doing this with a bunch of different movies and it seemed like they didn't really care about theatrical but then yeah you're right ari it's all oh well these movies are terrible none of them made money well uh, and sorry in case anyone didn't know what that oscar nominated film is it was call me by your name <laughs> never heard of it <laughs> What's that? So, okay, well, yeah, so this goes maximum 311 screens. It's opening weekend. It made $964,000, making it number 19 at the box Ugh. office. It closed out of theaters on December 20th, so perfect for Christmas. Uh, it grossed about $5.1 million internationally and $2.4 million in the U.S. Mm. Uh, we're looking at a worldwide gross of about $7.5, $7.6 million against that Jesus. $20 million budget. I'm going to go buy this like 10 more times just well, to make up for Well, that. here you mm. go. The Blu-ray comes out January of 2019, and in its first six months of release, it earns $1.1 million. Oh, wow. But also, again, I think, the, giving credence to my conspiracy, this disc is the one of the shittiest, most oh, yeah. disappointing horror releases. <laughs> like, where are the special features? Where are the extras? Does this thing even have a trailer? I think it does. I think that's, like, more or less one of the things it has. It does have a trailer, but that trailer is not on the Blu-ray. Um, oh there are three featurettes. One <laughs> oh of them is... Oh, no. One of them is a making-up featurette that is three and a half minutes long. Like... <laughs> I'm baffled. <laughs> this is a two and a half hour movie, and every every single second of this movie drips atmosphere, deliberate construction in in all aspects of filmmaking. You cannot condense that into a three minute featurette. That is insulting. No. That is super insulting. Also, like I have been working on getting building the Watcher cult on Twitter since <laughs> I watched it like six times in like two weeks. Um, and I will happily start up my leadership of the Suspiria cult as well. Right. The Suspiria 2018 cult. Like, I have to be very specific about that. Right. <laughs> well, um, luckily, while, while the audience turnout wasn't the best, um, 
Well, I was gonna say luckily. I don't know why I'm saying luckily because the critical reaction was also extremely polarized. Um, we're looking at a 65% of Rotten Tomatoes with an average score of 6.9 out of 10, which I think is very interesting because an average score of 6.9 out of 10 is pretty good. That's, I think that sounds good for a 67% uh, or 65% score. So it's like mm. it was leaning positive. We've got a 64 out of 100 on Metacritic, but Letterbox users have given it a very nice 7.4 out of 10 or 3.7 ah. out of 5. Okay, Letterbox, you've you've saved the day a little bit. That's a five star for me on Letterbox. I'm about to bump it up to one of my favorites. My it's going to be on there the top. Yeah, four. this this is a four and a half out of five for me. This ready. is a very nearly perfect film. I Joe, I bumped this up from a three out of five on my first watch to a four and a half out of five on the second. Yeah, watch. baby, yeah. you are coming along. Welcome to the cult, Daddy. <laughs> I, I I just needed to wait four years and do some research. That's all I needed to do. I mean, yeah. Sometimes that's what it takes. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, that's really it for production, release, and reception. I do have one little bit that I'll just mention, but I don't really want to get too much into it. But there was a lawsuit about this film. Um, it was reported the, that Amazon Studios was being sued for copyright infringement by the estate of artist Anna Mendieta. The suit, filed in a federal court in Seattle, Washington, alleged that two images present in the film's teaser trailer were plagiarized from Mendieta's work. The first mm-hmm. is an image of a woman's hands bound with rope on a white table, allegedly derived from her untitled rape scene piece of art. And the other is a, the red silhouette of a body imprinted on a bedsheet, which was claimed to have been derived from her Silhouetta series. A cease and desist letter had been delivered to Amazon in July over the images, and they were not included in the subsequent theatrical trailer released the following month. But according to the suit, both images had been excised from the film, but an alleged eight others bore notable similarities to other works by Mendieta. So about two days before the film's release, it was reported that Amazon Studios and Mendieta Estate had reached an undisclosed settlement. Yeah, okay, Mm -hmm. so with that, I would say, like, that makes sense and i am glad that they came to a settlement and agreement because that means that yeah mindy they, is getting they clearly money, did lift those images good. so yeah they should be paying those artists and it's and and this is the kind of movie too like where i wouldn't und- i don't it's in bad faith to not approach the artists and mm-hmm. their estate like if it's if it's clear that you're taking if nothing else it adds more credence to the film and just kind of like what it's trying to incorporate in the vibe of it like you know this is a type of art that we're taking inspiration from like it, it mm-hmm. could, it would have been a win-win. I don't understand why, why the studios well, just don't do that. They have money, but un- unless she didn't want to give away her stuff for it, yeah, maybe not. And maybe, right. and may, it may be a thing. The studio is like, well, we have the money, so if she sues us, we'll just we'll just take care we'll of it. Settle, yeah, <laughs> it's worth it. Yeah, we'll run the I mean, but if they're out of the film, then what's the point? Well, but then they have eight others that are bear similarities, so oh, they paid. Yeah. That's why there's settlement, and they're not, those aren't removed. That's true. Yeah, that's true. And if folks want to actually cross-reference these, I'm going to direct you to the first of a couple of sources I'm going to reference throughout the episode, in case folks didn't know. Stacy Ponder from Gaylords of Darkness is just a bit of a fan of this movie. So uh, she has a huge comprehensive archive of all sorts of stuff. But I'll direct you to her day 25 of 31 posts on the film called Appropriate versus Appropriation, in which she actually documents all of the artistic references that Luca and his collaborators do. And it's really interesting. Like, you can really see it when they're laid out side by side. It's a very oh. interesting post. Yeah, Stacy, thank you for doing the Lord's work. I will definitely be looking at it. Oh my that. god, yeah. So, <laughs> so much work. <laughs> <laughs> we have some podcast episodes for you to listen to. <laughs> Jesus Christ, Yeah. <laughs> Ari, I think you may actually have to join her cult because I think she might be the OG. Cult hey, I'm down. Yeah, please take me, take me on board. Let's. I can be the the marketing director now. 
That's <laughs> <laughs> fine. Oh, man. Well, okay. So that is how Suspiria came to be and what happened to it. So why don't we finally talk about what, I don't know, all the things that happened in this movie, Joe. <laughs> all right. So uh, I'll also reference that I'm drawing a little bit on friend of the show, Terry Menard's review on Gaily Dreadful, as well as a piece by Zoe Fortier called Women and Queerness in Horror Suspiria 2018 for Phoenix Gaming. All right, so we open with Suspiria, a little title card that says the film is composed of six acts and an epilogue set in divided Germany. So right off the top, if you didn't think that the divided Germany parts were important, the film's telling you right from the opening moments. So we open with Act 1, 1977, and right off the bat, we're getting more frenetic shooting and editing than we'll see in the rest of the film, and this is to mirror the distraught and delusional psyche of Patricia, who is played by Chloe Grace Moritz, and she bursts into the office of psychiatrist Dr. Klemper, who is played in drag by Tilda Swinton. <laughs> I will not acknowledge the fact that they tried to do this bullshit PR spin. I don't know why they did it. I, I don't think- only hurt the film. I, mean, I don't even want to talk about it, but no, yeah, it's y'all's podcast. <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, uh, I think it's stupid. It is stupid. I'll, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll go through this really quick. I mean, just it's like March of 17, so about what, six months before the film actually gets released. Photographs of a seemingly old man, like, you know, were released, and people were like, oh, that's still just went in and makeup. Uh, yes. <laughs> exactly (laughs) actually so then a year later about six months before the film comes out in february of 2018 guadagnino calls the claim complete fake news saying the Mm. man was not swinton but in fact a german actor named lutz ebersdorf in his screen debut they even made a suspiciously empty imdb profile for this (sighs) quote-unquote actor (laughs) why i don't know during a press conference at the film's premiere they were still like, going mm-hmm. with the charade, Swinton yep. read a letter purportedly written from Eversdorf in lieu of his presence, which read, I am a private individual who prefers to remain private, though I strongly suspect Suspiria will be the only film I ever appear in. I like the work, and I do not mind getting up very early. Okay. So, okay. the end of September 2018, this is when we see it at Fantastic yeah. Fest. <laughs> After that screening, everyone's like, no, come on, that is fucking Tilda mm-hmm. Swinton in that role. And then finally, October of 2018, the month the movie comes out, Swinton told the New York Times, uh, <laughs> God, this is so fucking stupid, that Klimper was played by Lutz Ebersdorf, and Ebersdorf was played by her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which is like epic trolling on her behalf and kudos for that. But also, I mean, I remember in the run up to the film's release, this was one of the stories that was dominating the headlines. And to me, all that does is detract from what the film is actually trying to do. Like, it's more interesting to say we wanted an almost entirely female cast and we had this significant role. So we asked Tilda to do it. Yeah. Like what it just... What a stronger, yeah, a stronger approach. Because yeah. then it would have just been the police. I think that were like the prominent mm-hmm. male cast members. And, well, yeah, yes. every every man in this movie is mocked and made fun of. Oh yeah, <laughs> yes, oh, yeah. aggressively, and it's delightful. But but yeah, <laughs> so that's that's that out of the way. Like I I like Swinton in this role of Klimper. Sure, I never for once think she doesn't sound like Tilda Swinton making an old man voice. Oh, sure. I liked the voice. And I was, I, I want to say, like, I was not really, like, up to date on this whole thing. But by the time I saw it, I didn't know about it until, like, after. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking it was weird. And I want to say the person, I think it was Jenny sitting next to me, 
someone sitting next to me was like, you know, that's Tilda Swinton, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's probably Jenny. And I was like, what? <laughs> I mean, honestly, I did. So I think for me, uh, I didn't know Swinton was Mother Marcos when I saw. Oh, that, that yeah, that's right. more of a which that to me is the bigger reveal. That's more fun. Agreed. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, but but I want to make it clear. I don't dislike any of these things. I don't hate the fact that we no. have Tilda Swinton playing. I don't find it distracting. I, I don't. It, it Hell is no. Just the marketing, but the PR stunt, as you said, Joe, that yeah. was right. more distracting to me than the actual. And that itself. PR stunt. I mean, studios need to know now these days. I'm sorry, but like film internet the internet film twitter oh. film fans on the internet they will find every fucking thing as a huge scream fan like i have <laughs> to avoid every other scream fan that's like remotely near a filming location because i will see everything you know like mm-hmm, they'll, mm-hmm. they'll get in there so it's not like the era of blair witch when you can pretend like the thing that you're showing people is real and and then there's yeah. not that much you know uh information around it this is uh-huh. a different era. You well, can't do that shit anymore. Maybe those days were, are over. Yep. They they were so in character they actually thought it was still nineteen seventy seven. Oh maybe they <laughs> shared delusion. Needless to say, so we we do have this opening sequence. Um, this is really our only taste of Chloe Grace Moritz, and um, I think she's fine. I don't know that Patricia is much of a character. She becomes more of a specter that haunts the film. And I like that better. I think that's sort of more efficient. In... Oh, I mean, I, I, yeah, I think like with what she, with the screen time she has, like, I think she does a really great job of like, because she doesn't have much to, to mm-hmm. say or do. But in that in the time that she is on screen, I think she encapsulates like everything going on with her character and like communicates that mm-hmm. and really exudes that so clearly and effectively for me. I do love that she is one of the top built actors and she has six minutes of screen time. Yeah, I like that. Too. I actually <laughs> like that too. Um, I, but I also, I mean, I didn't realize how many horror remakes she was in. I mean, we got Carrie, so we've got many. this, Let Me In. Um, mm-hmm. uh, oh God, there's like two others. There were five that I counted. I was like, this is bizarre. Good for her. I mean, I guess she likes the genre. <gasps> yeah. <laughs> So one important thing to note about this particular sequence is that she is fully saying that the Dance Academy is run by witches. Yes. And sure, we could see, oh, well, she's hysterical. We're not believing her. But it's a complete stark contrast to the original Suspiria where we're not saying witches. Like, we're whispering about it. We're not meant to know what's actually going on. And here, the new film is saying, yeah, they're witches right from the top. Which I, I appreciate that, but also again, like even even though I thought the Entertainment Weekly quote lied to me, like it is <laughs> the original has a very graphic opening kill scene with Patricia, and I love that this movie's like, no, <laughs> we're not doing that. <laughs> we're not showing you anything. <laughs> I actually think uh, Patricia, kind of as the the character and like the diary and all of that stuff, I think that as a framing device for the lore around this. Mm works really well in the movie and how it unfolds and again i do think that the two and a half hour runtime like it works well with that like it unfolds it in enough but i again joe i agree like i love that it's just kind of out the gate it's like yeah these are witches (laughs) and they're Mm -hmm. gonna eat my cunt it's (laughs) wonderful I mean, if you got to go out on a line, well, I mean, obviously she gets a couple of lines in the end with Later, Sarah, yeah. but this is a, a pretty good exit line. Yeah. yeah well, that's, um, that's what do you, what is it called? The zombie character from 
isn't there like a zombie Doctor Strange? Whatever that version is. Oh, that's zombie Strange. Zombie. This is a zombie Patricia at the end. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. It's not really her. It's her. It's oh, a different version of her now. I do love this though. So while we don't get primary colors in the aesthetic of the film, we do get it in the subtitles because whenever they speak mm-hmm. German, they are red subtitles. And whenever they speak French, it is blue subtitles. I actually have an interesting read on that for later. Ooh, okay, good. Uh, okay, so this is our introduction to the film. We've met Klemper, who will become an important character, and then we transition to a farm in Ohio. This is a Mennonite household, and this is shot in a really interesting way. So we're infrequently seeing the full body of anybody. So like heads are chopped off. We're only seeing hands. We're seeing like partial torsos and so on. So it feels very fragmented. Like this isn't these aren't real people in a way, but Essentially, they're all presiding over a sick woman who is played by Malgosia Bella. And really, the only reason I'm bringing this up is because, yes, this is Susie Banyan's backstory, played by Dakota Johnson. Not that we really get to see her here, but um, Malgosia Bella will come back later in a different role as well. Wait, who? She plays Death in the end. Oh! Oh, Yeah, which when you think about, oh, Marcos is saying, like, kill, kill the mothers. And you're like, oh, her actual mother comes back as death. Well, because Guadagnino focuses on this cross stitch when we first enter this farm. And it just says, you know, obviously we have mothers like all over this thing. But it says a mother is a woman who can take the place of all the others, but whose place no one else can take. And so I actually Mm -hmm. like that, that we then bring this woman back as... Uh, I guess the weapon mm-hmm. of Susie as mother, mother. I think my mom ha- gave me something that had that on it. I, I mean, yeah. it's probably, I'm, I'm sure it's a famous idiom. But okay, like... I was gonna say <laughs> it's on a thousand like throw pillows or cross stitched yeah. above doors <laughs> on cottages. Okay, but you don't know that my mom isn't like a Mennonite the head witch of a. <laughs> oh, I a guess Mennonite if it's her, yeah. witch, yeah, she yes. might be. You know what? One of my I was telling Trace this yesterday. One of my best friends growing up was a Mennonite, and I didn't realize that Susie was a Mennonite until last night. Oh really? And I was like, oh, okay, that makes hmm. sense because it's you know it's a uh, more a little more progressive than like the Amish community. Well, There's... that's yes because they break away as as yeah. Susie tells Blanc later. She's like, yeah, you know, we were radical, so we broke away from the Amish. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, for Mennonites are, I mean, in that context, yes. very radical Compa- comparatively mm-hmm. speaking. But even that, if you think about it, rebellion within the religion, right? Like the the Mennonites break away from the Amish in the same way that we're seeing people side with Blanc and Marcos. But absolutely. Okay. Well, we I, we don't. I guess we. Sorry. Because my my question was the whole time, but during both viewings, was Susie doesn't know she's Mother Superiorum, right? So this is an interesting point of debate. I feel like people think that she knows at different points. I don't know many people believe that she knows the whole time yeah no i don't think she knows the whole time i think it's it's kind of like a as she, it's kind of like when you're in the right place in the right time and the pieces start coming together for this to fully realize itself in her she mm-hmm. knows more the more it happens well, like that's a that's a theme that like i think is really cool it's like really it's a very like kind of empowering hmm. theme it's kind of and it's a very queer theme. yes it's like when the when the pieces fall in place at the right time, you can fully own who you are. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's always okay. been you. You just didn't always yep. know it within yourself. Exactly. Well, but even from a religious standpoint, because I mean, like we can view the three mothers as deities for this witch coven, right? Sure. Yeah. And mm-hmm. she comes from the Mennonite uh, faith, which is a Christian faith. But 
these three mothers predate Christianity, but then she's also, for lack of a better term, the reincarnated version mm-hmm. of Mother Superiorum. So then we're bringing in like Hinduism into this thing, or sorry, Hindu beliefs into this thing, uh, which I think is really, really, really interesting. I was just going to say that I think what I like a lot about this movie is that like piece that's kind of attached to identity. I think that that's mm-hmm. a really neat theme here that isn't, I didn't see as much talked about in, in some of the, main you know like kind of like the main themes that people pull out of this film and their pieces Mm -hmm. um because we see a lot about mother about the corruption of power which a lot of motherhood and the corruption of power a lot of the corruption of power stuff is probably more prominent uh just because Mm -hmm. of the social context and historical context but i think in general too the idea of kind of like identity and finding out what it means it's kind of like you know it's like a hercules you know it's like this journey (laughs) this hero's journey and like but then you like find out like kind of what it is and how to like how do i use this power because the thing too is i do think that at a point we could have seen uh susie and her mother superiorum form take different take a different route at the end Mm -hmm. um and what we see is something that's uh kind of above like petty politics which is kind of really what the rest of the um this the company was all about and and they and they corrupted kind of the the purity Uh of that so i don't know if this is like me rambling but but again that that to me is like a theme that really speaks really strongly to me Well, because that's the other thing too though but i mean because we're changing one of the superiorum from like the main villain of the original film to the heroine uh, of this film Kind of, kind of, kind of, kind yeah. of. But, but the based on the way that she ends the film, it's all because like these this 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 coven of witches are evil. But I don't get the impression that Mother Superiorum is inherently evil. Yeah, no, I wouldn't even say that the coven of witches is inherently evil. I think the idea of like the sisterhood that they're building and the community that they're building is meant to kind of be protective for them mm. in their space. I think that was always the point. And it's kind of just like, okay, like, how does this kind of of connection and this, uh, the power that comes out of it ultimately get corrupted? Because we see that a lot. Like, you, like if you think about, like, small communities and communes, like, there's a, a group, a, a, let's take it back further. Like, a group of friends, that's a, like a close-knit mm-hmm. group of friends, there can be power dynamic issues that pop up, even though it's like, hey, we're all the same. We found each other because we all like the same things and we all believe the same things. I think it's a really interesting look at kind of how there's like an inclination for people, humans, to ultimately end up in this power struggle because no one wants to let it go, I guess. But, but I think even though if we, if we want to do this queer reading to it too, we like view this ballet academy as a safe space for these witches mm-hmm. and how they end up kind of cannibalizing their own because they feed mm-hmm. off the life force of whatever of the younger ones. And I think you can absolutely see that in some queer communities, specifically gay male communities. <laughs> yeah. Right. It's interesting because I feel like we're seeing the Academy at a very specific moment in time as well, right? Like, there's a a number of repeated refrains about how Blanc got them through the dark years around, you know, the fallout after World War II and what the company Mm -hmm. had to do to survive. But it's interesting, right? Because in some regards... Yeah, I, I'm apt to think of this safer space and how it's a, a coven of women, right? Like they support their own and they're interested in realizing their potential, their shared dynamics, right? Like they can't operate on their own. They're a literal dance academy that needs to work together. And yet, yeah, they're absolutely cannibalizing the younger members 
but it's in part because the coven is dying so they need to bring back their their deity right like the leader so Mm -hmm. it's i don't know like i saw a bunch of reviews that suggested that the film is actually anti-feminist because it just pits women against each other in this power play of blanc versus marcos and i was like well, that is a very simplistic reading yeah. of this movie super, that I think is simplistic. not giving it enough credit. Well, because no. because that, that that is implying then that women shouldn't have arguments or fights or or, or, or be real people. Yeah, no. they, they should all be Mary Sue's, right? <laughs> yeah, no, I I think that even like for me, like Blanc is not uh, the the whole of cannibalizing of specific women or the the younger women in here and like needing to use them in the ritual and so that way they can bring forth the deity i think that that whole thing too it's kind of like it is a little bit of maybe like old generation versus new generation where it's like mm-hmm. hey this has always been the way we need someone to kind of right. essentially sacrifice themselves for the greater good and that was always the intention. And again, I feel like it, it maybe over time has been corrupted. So this to me just feels like kind of a, like a sect that over time got corrupted because of they get it. You get a taste of power and you can tell that some of the, some of the witches there, they revel in it more than others. And some of them can't handle it. Like the one, uh, like the one who kills herself. Well, but it's also, I mean, like that, that there's no lie, like there's no mistaking that this is in Germany too, because yeah, like mm-hmm. we have this, these stories of Nazi, of Nazis all the time, yeah, who were corrupted by power and Hitler's rhetoric. That's mm-hmm. not unlike what's happening here. Oh, that's to- that's the total <laughs> well, parallel. Yeah, yeah, and literally, I mean, Trace, when you went through the story, like hopefully people were paying attention when you walked us through those historical events, because it's literally a younger generation who's disappointed in the older generation, yep. and that's why they're fighting back. Like, mm-hmm. folks, that's literally what this movie is. Yeah, yeah, and, and even like the idea that like even folks from an older generation who had certain beliefs that didn't necessarily mean. And mm-hmm. oh my, and this is not meant to be like Nazi sympathizing at all. <laughs> much not more generally, anything. No. much more generally. But this idea of like that the intention is for the greater good. Like I think Blanc is someone who like by the end like re- like wants to protect um, Susie. You know, like it's uh-huh. like making sure that like that it's pure and that they're doing this the right way, mm-hmm. recognizing that it is a sacrifice, but also recognizing like this is the way. And not ap- approaching it in this really like predatory way with mm-hmm. with her power. And oh, so I love. I mean, that's why I love Blanc so much. Oh, same. Not just same. because Tilda is doing such an amazing job with her, but also because she's a fucking morally complicated character. Because yes. she absolutely she a wants to fuck Susie. Like, oh yeah. Oh yeah. These two are are like i fucking the entire movie oh yeah but she also is very protective right she's very maternal she wants to i was gonna say groom she wants to (laughs) uplift literally in some cases jump higher 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 she wants (laughs) to uplift these students but yeah she fully plans to kill several of these girls like what a fucking complicated well i think so the thing too that i was thinking too where i was going with that is like this idea of like we we mean we mean well it's kind of like the analog mm-hmm. to that now it's like this older generation like this is all we know and this sure. is how we know how to do it and some people can approach it by with the whole like this is all i know and i mean well where others can be very aware of how what they're doing is harmful and and exploit that but but even though with blanc though because like hey look the, the whole uh, uh uh ritual with marcos whoever she whatever body they get for her that person will die and so patricia is Mm -hmm. going to die however Mm -hmm. however it needs full consent 
to be able to happen. Right. And that's why, so even with, with, with Patricia, Tilda Swinton's like, I told you bitches she wasn't fucking ready. Mm-hmm. And look what happened to her. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, and it, I think it does highlight why the Marcos supporters are the ones who were kind of who like died. in the wrong here because yeah. they were like missing the mark. Yeah. <laughs> Pun intended. Missing the Marcos. <laughs> <laughs> missing the Marcos. There you go. <laughs> that's so that true. <laughs> All right. So Susie shows up at the dance academy. She's welcomed by Miss Tanner, who is played by Angela Winkler. And I love this bitch. Yes! I do too. Thank you. <laughs> she is, um, she's just delightful. Did not really. She only speaks to Susie three times in the entire film. One of which really? is this time. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I... I feel like one of the things that I just wish we got a bit more of was more of these madam slash matrons because they all seem really interesting and we get a taste of their personalities throughout various scenes. But a lot of them, I'm just like, oh, I couldn't tell you their name if I was forced to a gunpoint, but I find that they're fascinating. The the one that I always besides Tanner um, is Vindegas because she yes. looks like she should be played by Patricia Quinn from oh, yeah. Rocky Horror Picture okay. Show. Uh huh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she, yeah, Patricia Quinn. Quinn. Patricia Quinn is a uh, a kooky gal. Yeah, but it's okay. You can hear us talk about her in Lords of Salem. There we go. <sighs> yeah. So we've got this audition, and it's kind of got a counterpoint when Susie ultimately ends up taking the lead from Olga, and Olga is very uncomfortable with what's been going on with Patricia, who is now declared missing, and Susie steps up to take her role, and then we get this sequence, which was featured heavily in the marketing. I think they screened like this whole sequence at one of the film festivals. It was at CinemaCon in Las Vegas. It's like a convention, but yeah, they screened this. I remember when this happened, too, because it was all the buzz, or it was like, holy shit, Like now people are taking this movie seriously, because they (laughs) saw this scene. (laughs) As it should have been. Well, it's funny, though, right? Because in some ways, this isn't entirely representative of what the rest of the film is. You know, like, I would argue this is one of the most sensational elements of the film or sequences, rather. And I think it's great. But apart from this and maybe Mia Goth breaking her leg in the Mm -hmm. last act, like, this is the most extreme violence that we're going to see until the absolute climax. Well, but I will say, though, so again, the one thing one thing this movie does that I really, really, really do appreciate is that, yeah, we have the dancing be used as the spellcasters. Um, yes, which is I love it. You know, we don't have that really in the original because there's not a lot of dancing in the original. So this this was an intentional choice to have the dancing be front and center and also have the dancing be the witch's method of spellcasting. And while you are right, Joe, if I'm looking at this strictly from like I just said, bare bones, horror movie thing, Right. Does this feel a bit like, oh, like this isn't representative of the rest of the movie? No, it's not. But mm-hmm. it is such a crucial scene and a really yes. fucking upsetting scene. I mean, I think it's I think it's representative in the sense of like how the horror of the movie. Mm-hmm. I think it's pretty representative of that. It's gnarly. It's really kind of like surreal. Related, and, right? Yeah. And I but I think also like it's it did, like for them to have screened this in advance that's a bummer like i would have been really mad if that's what oh, i was yeah, because that, yeah. it's like blowing mm-hmm. your load and then you don't get to see anything else yeah, <laughs> like, yeah like, where's the tease this is the full cum shot exactly i will say though so because what i love about this too is that we find out later not even the witches knew it was gonna be this bad 
mm-hmm. because they say basically like Blanc tells them, you know, uh, oh, like we didn't know that Susie was going to be that powerful. Like she took our intention, but it went like overboard with our intention. Like we wanted to kill right. her. We weren't planning on doing this to her because <laughs> mm-hmm. she's the OG. I do want to shout out, though, a makeup artist, Mark Collier, here. Um, he had previously worked on several Clive Barker film adaptations, like Nightbreed yeah. and Candyman. Um, so he was this film's makeup effects coordinator. Uh, the bulk of the effects featured in the film were done via practical methods. I think the worst of the CGI we see is a lot of the blood splatter at the end of the film. Yes. But, um, yeah, so the death of Olga is, uh, <laughs> well, uh, they use a prosthetic arm, leg, broken ribs, a protruding dental cast for actress Elena Fokina. So they would appear as though the bones of her limbs, abdomen, and jaw were being crushed and broken. She mm-hmm. is a professional dancer and contortionist. So she achieved... I knew it. Yes. <laughs> yeah, she's outstanding. There's just, like, her performance in this whole scene is so hard to watch and so... Mm-hmm like grotesque like the jaw uh the jaw prosthetic to me gets me every well, time and the editing too in this scene is fantastic as we keep going back and forth between oh, susie and olga but i love that in that super brief three and a half minute making up featurette when they're filming <laughs> olga's scene and she's got one of her arms like a whole green screen uh thing but dakota johnson is there like a few feet away from her dancing so she can see uh, the move she's doing. That's cool. Wow. Good yeah, that. I mean, that makes perfect sense, right? Mm-hmm. I think, and you know, honestly, just, it, I think it probably is the most obvious thing to say, but actually having dancing be a significant part of this in mm-hmm. this way, to me, like, I just remember thinking like, you know what? I maybe would have liked the original more the first time I watched it. If there was like some really lovely dance <laughs> show pieces, you know, like set pieces, like, right? how are you going to set something in a dance academy and not have dancing um with this entire sequence though too because before olga starts getting killed you know we have madame blanc she grabs Susie's hands and then touches her feet and we for a blink of an eye yes. we see like a white glow on her uh-huh. hands and her feet and this is a glow that will keep coming back throughout this film oh it's the hereditary glow yes the hereditary glow which <laughs> <laughs> joe, joe i don't know if you caught this um so and this is just something i just thought because uh when, basically whenever Susie is walking to the sanctum for the black sabbath scene at the very very end she's following mm-hmm. this glow and she's right. almost in a trance going down this like you know like really old like a uh, 17th century looking hallway it mm-hmm almost exactly reminds me of a very similar scene in Walt Disney's Sleeping Beauty when Aurora is following Maleficent's light to the spinning wheel. And Sleeping Beauty is also a ballet. Right, yeah. I I don't know. I mean, I didn't know if that was intentional or not, but like I saw that and I was like, oh, it's Sleeping Beauty! (laughs) Trace also stands Sleeping Beauty, if you didn't know. I bought him the Sleeping Beauty uh, vinyl. (laughs) It's a fucking banger. Also, love that we're referencing both Sleeping Beauty and Hercules in this episode. (laughs) Well, we're fans of both in this home. (laughs) There we go. There we go. I can totally see it, though. I see this as something of a dark fairy tale. Well, because that's the thing. Like, we keep seeing, like, honestly, because we keep seeing this light in a lot of Susie's dreams. So I view this more so as the spirit of Mother Suspiriorum that she Mm -hmm. is, like, flirting with almost. Yeah, like she's being led to realization, actualization, awakening, and so on. Yeah, exactly. Although I will confess, I see Susie coming into herself as Mother Suspiriorum a little bit earlier. Where where do you see it, Joe? I'm curious. So I see it when Blanc comes to visit her in her room because they're actually communicating telepathically. Yes. Mm-hmm. 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 See, I see her starting to come into it. Let's, let me think. 
So Blanc visits her in the room after mm-hmm. or before the it's, dance performance. It's after Volk. After Volk. Okay, so I see it a little like the, there's more awareness when she starts being able to speak French and mm-hmm. um, right. Mia Goth is like concerned. What are you doing? Concerned. Your father. Yeah. yeah. And but she's kind of like trying. She's like, it's fine. It's fine. Like that's clearly more more of it's coming out from. But me. I do love. I mean, on a first of being, I miss this. But you know, we have the flashback to Susie's home where she's a little girl and she keeps trying to look at Berlin on the map. Mm-hmm. And her sister's like, "Bitch, you can't. You got to study America." Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> so her entire life, she's had this force pulling her to Berlin. So it's like absolutely. She doesn't yeah. know, but she knows something. Well, I think that that's like that's kind of um. It feels like a familiar trope. It, like I'm, yeah. There's something. Uh-huh. There's another film or something where something like that happens, where someone's like inexplicably drawn to a specific area or a specific mm-hmm. person. But yeah, that's. How, I mean, it's. I I like that they use that and that they show a lot of that. You know, from her childhood. But to me, it almost feels vampiric, right? Like you're you're being lured, or even sirens, right? Where you're being called mm-hmm. to some kind of destructive force. Only in this case, it's like, no, we've got to help you wake up and realize who you actually are. Well, yeah. But yeah. I also love that in one of the flashbacks where we actually get to hear Susie's mother speak, she says, "You know, you are my sin. You're my greatest sin." And I'm just yeah, like, oh, yeah. so mom was seeing the symptoms of this. Yeah, I mean, I really like that, too, because she says it, I want to say, on her deathbed. Like, oh, but, when she's really, uh-huh. like, she's probably, like, in the throes of dementia and not very, you know, not aware of what's going on. But, like, I like that. That's very, um, I want to say that that's kind of like a Lovecraftian thing. It's kind of like the madness that when you're mad, you mm. can see, you can, like, recognize this, like, power but she, but, but she says that though I, I assume that she said that because she had Susie out of wedlock because we don't have a father. Okay, here. I know Trace, but we're talking oh, about like the oh, parallels. No, here. no, no, no. no. <laughs> I, 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 I know. Both could be true. No, I know, but I think I think the literal thing is that. But yeah, you you actually yeah. Bring, yeah but what makes it that. like powerful in the movie is that is that like yes because this this daughter is like a goddess well but that that's the thing mm-hmm. too right yes exactly so yeah what, what is a technically an abomination in certain christian religions meaning right. a child having a child out of wedlock is the reincarnated form of a deity in this witch coven which of course you know witchcraft is a, a sin in most christian cultures Okay, but hello, you're also talking about Jesus, like, yeah. Immaculate <laughs> Conception becomes a deity. Well, God was involved with that. Also, though. like, <laughs> so was Mother Suspiriorum. <laughs> Wait, did did uh, Jesus get resurrected before Lazarus? No, Jesus resurrected Lazarus, and then re- Jesus was resurrected three days after he was crucified. Oh, there you go. So he's not the OG <laughs> zombie, but he's one of them. <laughs> I forget. I've been. I've written off my Christian education. But, okay, but, so, oh, but, no. but we we do believe that Mother Superiorum has been born and born and just moving through person to person, like through reincarnation. I'm assuming. Uh, I don't know. Why would you believe that? Well, uh, only because Susie was is Mother Superiorum, and how did she? She wasn't didn't go through some ritual to be. To have Mother Superiorum transferred in her body, so I think it's po- I think it's possible that there that this this entity has been kind of of be uh, being like resummoned over like mm-hmm. 
centuries or like millennia well, even well, like, no because the whole oh god my, my 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 christianity education is kind of wavering here but it's like well because the whole thing like whenever the end of days comes that's when jesus comes back he officially comes back the rapture yeah yeah what about it well so that might be like what so if, if we're like the apocalypse <laughs> well but that might be what this is right like this is like a oh my god for lack of a better term a come to jesus moment for these witches and that's Ooh. why mother superiorium has like has finally come back in, in the body of a physical human being susie's the Right. first and only because it's I mean, time. the way that yeah the way that i saw it is that the um sisterhood had become corrupted and mother Suspiria yes. herself came back to correct it because that was the only yeah. way that it could be corrected w- w- yeah, which like is like marcos has gone astray yeah but normally it would just be like marcos or blanc would presumably just put themselves into the body of a young nubile girl but in this case it's like Suspiriorum looks at them and is like you bitches are fucking up left, right, and center. I'm gonna come back. I'm gonna deal with this. Right, stuff. but but and again, it's because what what what's about? Why does the rapture start? It's because we we have spent our time here and we've done fucked up. It's like it's like knowing the ark, right? What's well, like, yeah? It's like you've are, like too look much at Christian what you've done. Yeah, this is a lot of <laughs> this is actually really bizarre too. Like the the Christian and I'm sure there are others, but like that yeah that whole idea of like things have become too corrupted and I need to right. cleanse to cleanse this. it. Uh huh. Uh huh. Yeah. Sorry for the non-Christian folks out there with all the references to, like... Oh, but if you have links to your religion in this film, by all means, submit them, because I would love to hear those connections, too. Yeah, because as someone who doesn't have a Christian background, I I see some parallels, but I don't know that I would want to put a full-blown reading on it, because I don't know that the film supports that. I think that, that, like, defaulting it to, like, this Christian idea, this Christian theme is like really taking away from the universal nature of like this type of story no because for, it's not inherently christian to for me for sure absolutely I, 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 I don't see what the harm in doing a reading of it but it's not the reading of it well it's a reading of it because that is your back you know that's yeah, your background absolutely absolutely i also just don't want to spend like 40 minutes talking on about religion <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, okay. So Olga is dead, and we get this hook scene. <laughs> oh I want to talk about religion. You can just uh, tweet us later. We'll get in the group <laughs> chat. <laughs> so as two non-practicing Christian people, I know. I'm not Christian. I don't identify well, as that. But uh, yeah, anyway, not anymore. Yes, let's go ahead, Olga. Yes. So I have to say, this is the prop that was sent out to a number of film critics, and this is the piece of swag that I am the most jealous to have not received. Oh my god, yeah. I would love to own that. Yeah. Like, can yeah. you imagine getting this fucking thing in the mail? I would die. I would make it make the noise, you know, whenever he sets it on the table, and it just keeps uh, going back and forth. Well, that was and the then, trailer. And then sample it, and then make, like, a song out of it. I think that'd be great. <laughs> Coming soon to TikTok. The sound of the song. There you go. Get the dance. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it, a choreograph a dance. But I will say, I mean, I've seen a couple of people do the reading, uh, Stacey Ponder among them, that it's proof that these witches, whether or not we want to believe that they think that they're good people or don't see themselves as bad people, that they are, to some extent, pretty evil because we learn that Olga is actually still alive after all of this. Oh, yeah. And they all just brandish these fucking hooks like, ooh, they are so gleefully delighted to be sinking them into her flesh. And the way that we get every individual shot of each one of them, like a POV mm-hmm. of their face is just like, boom, boom, I, I'm boom. curious. I didn't notice this when we rewatched it, but do we know if it's... Because it's not all of the coven who mm-hmm. does it. It's is not, it, no. Is it just the ones who voted for Marcos? 
It's a lot of them. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. that would make a little more sense to me. Because mm-hmm. this is after the scene, because Act 2 begins with them in the kitchen doing their votes. And it's tricky, right? Because we don't know all of their names and the camera isn't actually focusing on all of them. But then there is that confirmation at the end when Death is going around killing all of the women and they get those kind of like direct address where they like yell their vote at the camera mm-hmm. and it it's all of these women i think i yeah. love that that moment too just because when they're casting their votes we don't see them um at Mm-mm. the we just hear the voices but just like every voice kind of has their own little like unique yeah. quality to it it's oh i've the number of times i've gone around just yelling like marcos at people <laughs> <laughs> Blanc. He, he was doing it in bed all last night <laughs> oh my god and the dogs are like what's going on yeah <laughs> they're used to it by now <laughs> Okay, well, we haven't really talked too much about Sarah and her journey because Patricia sort of starts us on this investigation and she introduces us to Klemperer, but then Sarah almost becomes an audience proxy. And part of Terry's review, in addition to talking pretty uh, extensively about like the corruption of authority and that kind of stuff, is he talks about how in some ways the film is challenging because even though we know Susie is our protagonist, we do get a lot of insight into Sarah and Klemper and to a certain extent Blanc. Yeah, and I think um, like the initial meeting, it may be the initial one with Klemper and Sarah, she's kind of reluctant to really buy into it and really do all of that. Well, this old man shows up and he's like, hey, I've got your missing friend's journal. Let's go to tea. (laughs) And she's like, stranger danger exactly as she should and then you know obviously she gets kind of like the enough evidence to recognize oh yeah there's some shit going down he's right so yeah i mean i do i feel i think the the i guess it's the middle chunk of the film does focus more on kind of that or that's interwoven more into the story and so it, it makes sense like you care about sarah i i really like mia goth i said this to trace whenever um X was coming out and I was like, oh, Mia mm-hmm. Goth. And he's like, well, what do you like her from? I'm like, she's in Suspiria and she's beautiful and amazing. And looking at like, I look at her and I'm just like captivated by her. It, and we, we discussed this a bit in our X Patreon episode. So again, go listen to that. I, I didn't remember her. I, mean, I knew she, I remember her being in this, but I didn't like, my thing was, I was always like, I feel like I've never seen her smile. Like, I feel like I always see her play right. the kind of like sullen, like meh, 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 poor me kind of character. Um, not unlike how I used to feel about um, Michael Monroe, and who I love now. Oh, okay. Hmm. But honestly, even watching this again, I found so much more uh, liveliness in her performance, I guess, than I remember right. being there. So yeah, the, the, she. I'm I'm hopping aboard the Mia Goth train slowly but surely. Okay, but like nice. her acting has not never been like oh poor me like just no. being a certain type of having a certain type of delivery. No, but know? she I feel like she plays similar characters. She has like a signature presence. Yeah, I think. Yeah, yeah. it's almost like a quiet poutiness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really enjoyed her performance this go around. So yeah. this is my third time watching the movie because I watched it earlier this year for White Ladies in Crisis, which. Yes, fascinating because we had a completely different conversation. So mm. folks, go and listen to that because apparently the movie is very open to multiple readings. <laughs> well, you also because like, it was you and uh, women on on that podcast, right? Yeah, it's former guests Jen Adams and Gina Radcliffe. Right, right. Oh, okay. Yeah. But there's something about Mia Goth in this role. I find her incredibly sympathetic, even yeah. though yes. initially she's introduced and she's kind of dismissive of Susie. Like she shows up late and she makes Susie have to pay for another night at the hotel. And she seems, you know, distracted because she's worried about Patricia and the bombings and all this other stuff. But 
over the course of time, you start to realize, oh, she's actually a really good friend. Mm -hmm. And obviously part of the queer reading of this film is that she and Susie have a kind of puppy love schoolgirl romance. Like you can see them hanging out in bed together and being like girls at a sleepover. And I think that that all works really well with Goss kind of innocent vibe yeah because they do that little sleepover to get she's like what does she say something like you can sleep in with me or we can sleep in the same oh room. like they, my, i would sleep with my sister in bed yes like, i'm your sister now yeah yes exactly. i think that's so i think it's so sweet and yeah i i think that she is very sympathetic in the role and and like the nuances of mia goth's performance like make it work because i think initially i think even she's written as like someone who comes from a ton of money oh the clothes are so good and just like but just like watching her kind of get like more aware of what's going on and be concerned about it and want to do right by you know susie Mm -hmm. and patricia i mean Um, she got a lot on her plate yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) girl's got some live stressors going on my god i mean part of me thinks okay the events of this film take place over what maybe a couple of months max and we just got students who are constantly disappearing and even at the end of the film oh blanc has left the company as well quote unquote it's like (laughs) it's a rough time at the dance academy taper back together i was literally about to be like uh it obviously takes place over the entire like second half of the year because it ends at christmas but that was pretty little liars original yes it was which we we also just finished (laughs) not at all the same thing no No, it's very different but they are set during the same time period well i'm sorry the same time of year (laughs) right yeah they're not they're not set in the german autumn (laughs) although i'm surprised that tabby didn't manage to squeeze in oh jesus christ yeah (sighs) we won't go there (laughs) Um, well can we talk about the queerness between Susie and blanc then sure but where do you want to start do you view blanc as a repressed lesbian i don't even why she have to be repressed nothing about her is repressed i think she's very like an no i know (laughs) i know (laughs) i was like uh what movie were you watching i was being being cheeky (laughs) well we don't see any direct overtures right like maybe this is where i'll bring in 48 because uh you know she's written specifically about the queerness in this movie and i thought it was interesting that she immediately identifies the sort of lesbian signifiers and it brought me back to the debate around things like portrait of a lady on fire where i think lesbians get tired of non-sexual depictions uh you know like as gay men trace you and i in our they slash them episode we talked about like uh like we need to see lube in gay sex scenes yes really frustrating mm-hmm. when you don't see that mm-hmm. and like then you think about what lesbians get so fortier says bristling with familiar subtextual signifiers for queerness and i'm inserting lesbianism here or bisexuality sex between women we get lingering glances gripping hands and sitting on each other's beds and i'm just like yeah like that's got to be really frustrating (laughs) but this movie has it in spades the handmaiden this ain't i was gonna say yeah (laughs) (laughs) although i mean a lot of people have read bdsm into the kind of relationship between the two women about like power dynamics like i love that moment where blanc is like okay we got to get you up in the air we need to get you doing jumps and Susie's like "Ooh, but i want to be down here fucking the floor because that's closer mm-hmm. to marco somewhere the power is and it's oh. like mm. you can see that combativeness but they in their relationship but they flirt and it's like her like oh, sometimes yeah. sometimes i only need to be told twice but which i fucking ooh. love her delivery of but that. actually like, though do yeah. you think though that i don't know if the, the 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 rope costumes for the dance have any significance to the piece itself 
or if that's tying into our BDSM reading there as well. It's both. So it's definitely drawing on an existing piece of work that Stacy mentions. Yeah. It's one I was of the artists say, that I they feel drew like inspiration it's from. Mm. But also people have definitely been like, oh, those are BDSM ropes, right? Yeah. <laughs> Just <laughs> wagging around, flapping around. Mm-hmm. I mean, there is a little bit like uh, Susie's like a uh, the sub, you know, like uh, mm-hmm. well, Blanc is like giving her like dreams, you know, like giving her oh, language, sure. like letting her Actually, grow in power. What do know? y'all make of that, though? Why? Because they do that for all the girls. They send all of them dreams and nightmares. Why do they do that? I think they're trying to suss out who's the best fit for the ritual. Mm. yeah because because if you think about what like the types of things that Susie's seeing in her dreams and i'm assuming because patricia talks about like they're in my brain they like took my eyes they took Mm -hmm. basically they're like they can like they're uh surveilling you all the time yeah like even when you're sleeping so maybe that's a way for them to get an idea of like what's really going on inside someone how much uh how much of a fit they are for this ritual right okay and not to divert this again is marco's putting out the idea that she is Mother Suspiriorum. Or is that... Because there is a line where, where uh, I want to say, Blanc, oh, Blanc tells Tanner, if Marcos really were one of the three mothers, we w- wouldn't be in this situation. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know if that was, uh, oh, man, I wish we had one of the mothers here. Or if it was, a mm-hmm. hey, Marcos is saying she's one of the three mothers, and I don't think she is, type thing. I, no, I think it's, yeah, I think, like, she's claiming, because even whenever Susie as Suspiriorum at the end approaches her marcos is afraid basically being like who who do you think you are or like who who are you like speaking for or whatever and so clearly like she's she's been touting herself to be closer to the power than she is i mean i think that's kind of like the extent of what what the interpretation needs to be just read that as a false prophet (laughs) sure (laughs) but yeah but she is because she's manipulating that like this this lie i mean they've kept her alive all this time she's manipulating it to stay in power Mm -hmm. yeah and i think by sheer virtue of following Susie's story and her obsession with blanc we naturally sort of side with them but it does seem clear that blanc is the more level-headed she's more cautious she's more deliberate whereas it seems like a lot of the marcos followers and then marcos herself are very kind of like well let's just do this (laughs) blanc is a more by the book follower like she's about like the purity of the sisterhood that's how Mm -hmm. i've read that and marcos is more of me 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 the power being corrupt she is the power being corrupted yeah she just wants to get into this young nubile body she wants to Mm -hmm. hollow her out Maybe that kind. We'll see. Maybe. <laughs> I will tell you, Joe, though, never was I more happy to have subtitles than I was whenever Marcos was, quote unquote, speaking. Yeah, oh, it's a very yeah. breathy delivery by Swinton <laughs> underneath all of that. Um... I just love her, like, laughing. Like, she's, like, losing it at points. Like, she's so happy about what's going on until she dies. Tilda Swinton's <laughs> like, I've been in this goddamn makeup chair for 16 hours. <laughs> <laughs> she, like, yeah. properly lost it for a while. She detached from reality. I do think it's funny, though, because, I mean, Tilda Swinton is a very striking figure. Sometimes she's been described as, like, having androgynous sort of features. She's statuesque. She looks like a model. And then, of course, we're contrasted with that sort of beauty, which is a bit more traditional, with someone like Marcos. And you read descriptions online and people are like, oh, it's Jabba the Hutt with sunglasses. Or, you know, um, the <laughs> one so the one from Hellraiser. <laughs> the Chatterer. Chatter. No, Butterball. 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 Yeah. Yes. And I'm just like, oh, it's interesting, right? Because this movie is interested in 
female bodies, how we present, how we move through the world. Mm. And it's interesting that we just automatically are like, ugh, the ugly one, keep her away from everybody. <laughs> I mean, look, honestly, if she... <laughs> I I could get over the look of Mother Marcos. Mm-hmm. Is it the baby hand? You can't handle the baby hand? <laughs> honestly, I didn't notice the hand until the very, very end of her screen time, but it was more so the fact that... <laughs> things on her body seem to be just leaking a clear fluid and i don't mm-hmm. I, it's not sweat <laughs> i don't know what well, she's it is dying, Trey. she's she in disrepair to get into someone younger <laughs> she's not doing so well <laughs> what well, i love too that like you know pat like she, it didn't work out with patricia and she just looks like mother marcos now <laughs> okay but they all do so like at the end patricia mm-hmm. olga and sarah they're like right. zombies essentially yeah. And I like even then though it's like grotesque makeup and they look like they've been through it. Especially whenever Sarah finds Olga and finds Patricia whenever she's doing her little snoop around. Oh yeah, um, right. and just how they look, just so oh, it's so grody and so unsettling. But at the end, like I, it's not. It doesn't elicit the same disgust that I feel when I look at Marcos because I feel mm-hmm. bad for them and I love right. the idea of like. Of Suspiriorum granting them, like, peace, a peaceful death. Oh, yeah. Because they're being tortured. Well, I think that's how we know that she's a more kind of benevolent leader, right? Because even though, in a way, she's a bit of a petty bitch, because she just (laughs) sicks death on anybody who didn't vote for her (laughs) by virtue of voting for Blanc. Right. Right. But... At the same time, yeah, I mean, these girls that she knows that she was intimate with, specifically more so Sarah, but I think she has a kind of kinship with uh, Patricia and Olga. And yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of power to it. I remember being very mad when I saw this the first time in the theater, because I thought, well, you got all this amazing power. Why don't you just bring these girls back? Why do you have to kill them? But I think it's actually in service of the film and its mood and its atmosphere to say, you know what, these girls have been through a horrible ordeal and maybe death is better for them. Mm-hmm. Well, it's comparable to what she does to Klimper at the end by erasing his yeah. memories of the trauma. So it's right. like, yeah, we're, 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 if, if you keep survive, if you keep living, you will be a completely different person because of the trauma you've done. There's mm-hmm. an interesting message to be read there. But also, yeah, I mean, while you could view this as a good for her ending, like, fuck yeah, like, she's taking control of this shit. Yep. You could also view it as an abuse of power still. Yes. I view it as a good for her. I no. view it as a, but like, I think like it is messianic. Like, I do think she is, this character is like a Jesus figure for lack no. of a better, you know, okay. it's kind of like to, to or a figure that's here to like write things, essentially. Right. And what she does at the end is more in line with the themes around what was going on sociopolitically at the time. Right. Because of the, like, the guilt and shame from the previous mm-hmm. generation's actions during World War II. And kind of saying, like, to him, because he was a survivor. He mm-hmm. escaped. He had so much guilt around not being able to save his wife. Around not being able to save Patricia. Oh, Mm-hmm. You know, and I think like what what the message is there for me is, you know, like we need shame, we need guilt, but we don't need yours because right. it's like you're you are you did everything you could. And this was just a really awful scenario that you were in. There are people out right. there who are terrible and we need their we need them to feel bad. Well, and I, I meant more so the abuse of power coming from killing anyone who is voting for Marcos, if only because, yes, I agree it's more of a good for her ending. However, I'm saying that because I agree with her. 
If so. you didn't agree with her, you would absolutely view it. Hey, you're abusing your power because you're killing people who don't agree with you. See, I don't even think that I view it as as a... I mean, if we're looking at this as a cleansing, it's not, I'm petty and you didn't vote for me, so I'm going to kill you, bitch. It's like, hey, <laughs> you are part of the corruption, mm. and we are right. going like, to You need to be cut that. out. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You're, the, you're part of the cancer. We need to get rid of you. Exactly. <laughs> and by cancer, I mean, look at Marco. She looks like she's literally composed yeah. of Do you want to look cancer. like that? No. Let me just kill you and save you the trouble. <laughs> <laughs> well, I really like your reading, Ari, because particularly around Klemper, because I have seen a bunch of people sort of misinterpret this and say, well, why do a bunch of women have to die? And then the lone man in this film gets his memory wiped away so that he can live this sort of scot-free life and again i feel like i don't want to ever come down on people and say that the reading isn't correct but to me Mm -hmm. that seems like a misreading of everything that has come before well yeah i just i just didn't view it that way i viewed it as her as like kind of this all-powerful being who could fucking explode this man's head who could like destroy probably you know all of berlin i i view it as Again, this person, this deity keeping the power, this entity keeping this power in a pure sense and not abusing it. Mm-hmm. Things are made right. Let's not, you know, have this loose thread. And let's also handle it in a way that is merciful. You know, you're letting right. him live. You're not, they could have just killed him because mm-hmm. he saw all the shit, you know. It, and I think independent of, I think it's merciful in two ways. You know, it's like, well, we should kill you. Because you've seen all this crazy stuff. Mm-hmm. And also, like, I know if you survive, you're going to be traumatized, and you don't deserve that. Well, I, I also don't want to overlook the fact, though, that the three girls who she mercy kills have all been disemboweled. And they also, she says, what do you want? <laughs> and they all say, I want to die. <laughs> yeah. The wounds to me are less telling, because we have we see them literally heal up over Sarah's broken right. leg. Like, yep. it's, not a, it's not a pure fix, but one thing's maybe you know, a fucking Mm. god could do a bit better. But I think to me, it's more telling that she actually asks them, what do you want? Mm -hmm. And then she gives it to them. Whereas Klemper never asks, Mm -hmm. this is just what she decides for him. Well, Mm -hmm. and so that's, uh, that's interesting, though, because I remember after the Fantastic Fest screening, there were a lot of debates going around on whether she was punishing Klemperer. Or if she Mm -hmm. was giving him mercy, because I think you could read it as both ways. I'm trying to... uh understand then how is it punishment that he doesn't remember the terrible shit that he saw i think it's because they've taken away all memories of these of these women including were meant to believe his wife well, i don't i don't, I don't believe see, that they but, did that but i i think maybe that was she the says was, the names no i know but i think maybe that was the debate that was going on though because it, I, the only reason i don't think that she erased his wife's memory is because she tells him the truth about the wife so why would you mm-hmm. tell him that and then erase no that i think i mean she even puts her hand on the side of his head and says memories of and she goes through the names mm-hmm. i don't believe she says his wife and anyone who's watching this can can correct us or whatever online but i think that, right. that it's as it's as explicit as just kind of looking back at the script or the I, line i think i think it's the line because she says oh i didn't write it down but it was she's something. i mean she goes she's like no, no, no. the memory of blah 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 the memory of blah 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 no i know but, but the, the, the thing where there was like you know supper 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 we don't need yours some people read that as you're not worthy of this. Like some people read it like that. Oh, that is that to me is not what I read because <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's not in line with the greater themes of kind of like this generational shame around the sins of the other generations. And it's saying like, yes, we need those people to feel shame. The people who participated in this horrible, horrible genocide and who perpetuated this 
Um, we need them to work through that. We need them to fill this because that's part, it's part of history. It's part of their oh. history. However, like, it doesn't mean that everyone thereafter needs to, you know, like, if you're not as culpable, like, you don't have to, we don't want that from you. Mm-hmm. We want it from other people. It's it's more mm-hmm. like, we want these other bitches who corrupted this power and this, you know, this sisterhood that we had to pay, to feel bad. We don't need it from you, though. You, you could also, I mean, again, like, we're going through this whole parallel with, you know, younger generation, older generation. Klimper has already lived through the actual horrific acts mm-hmm. of Nazi yes. Germany, and he has survived them um, at great cost. Whereas, not, not to say, like, Olga, Sarah, and, and Patricia just have to deal with, like, the aftermath, but that is a thing where they, they are dealing with the sins of their mothers, and they are, unfortunately, collateral damage. In that, which is exactly what would have happened in, you know, the actual, you know, political Mm -hmm. German time. Yeah, and I think, too, she talks about guilt and shame. And, like, Klemperer is suffering from survivor's guilt. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And that's a huge part of this. And I think, again, this is someone who, as much as they could, did all they could to try to save someone they loved. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. didn't. And is very clearly living with guilt. Very clearly living with shame. And her kind of releasing him from that finally. And saying, this is what happened to your wife, and you can let go of this. Like, you don't have to carry the blame anymore. Yeah. This is just mm-hmm. what happened. Yeah. There are other people that need to pay for this, and it's not you. Right. That's how I see it. Right, yeah. Because, I mean, that's why we see him make repeated trips across the border, right? Like, we haven't really talked about it, but, like, right. the people who are like, oh, the, the German stuff, it doesn't really fit in, or it's, like, not concrete enough for me. It, it needs to be more integrated into the stuff at the academy and i'm just like but we're seeing nothing but repeated shots of the fucking berlin wall right outside of the dance academy we're seeing the graffiti that's you know referencing the raf movement we're seeing klemperer literally make these trips between east and west berlin so that he can look at the symbol of all that he has lost and basically it's symbolic of his survivor's guilt and that's why the movie fucking ends on that shot as it kind of gets like slowly covered up and a new family has moved in like the healing process has begun Mm -hmm. that's and that that's the thing too right because the end the last well unless you count that post credits bit Dumb. I don't even know why it's in there. I don't know why. There has to be a reason it's there. But I, so Okay, I, I'm telling you, I think the only reason it's in there is so we can see her one more time. Well, because, well, because that's the thing, though. So we end this movie not on Susie. Again, I'm ex- ex- excising right. this post-credits moment. But mm-hmm. rather on a symbol of Klimperer and Anka. And yes. so I think that's really interesting. Again, in this movie that is heavily female-dominated, about motherhood, about sisterhood. But we end with this symbol of this couple. It's pure love, right? It's like love, it's yeah. it's beyond the corruption that has destroyed so many lives either in World War II or in the German autumn or at the dance academy like this is symbolic of what humans should be striving towards. So uh, so another thing I'm thinking too is like any of the readings around that as being like focused like ultimately narrowing down on like this man who was given mercy, all these women died, women were punished, etc. Mm-hmm. Two thoughts I have about that. One is kind of, and this is like a cuckoo, cuckoo out there thought. Yeah. Okay. But what if you were just read this as Klimperer is a trans person? Klimperer right. is living as That's yeah. the reading that we're fucking missing. I yeah. need trans readings on like, this. Like, what is wrong with that? Like, what about, mm-hmm. what about this is not, like, 
acceptable or believable because it is very intentional to cast Tilda in that role. Yes. Right. And I think even like that subverts all of these, you know, like mm-hmm. that, like that deepens this reading mm-hmm. a little more and complicates it. I think so. I think it actually really complicates it, particularly when you think of the trauma that they put Klemperer through to the point that Susie as Suspiriorum has to apologize for it, right? But yes. like yeah. they strip this person naked and make them bear witness. And if you read this through a trans lens, I think you're going to get some really complicated notions of what people do, particularly white feminists mm-hmm. to the trans community. Yeah, I would really <laughs> love to hear uh, trans perspectives and readings on this because I do think that that's something that is, again, we view it and talked about it as such a uh, an annoying marketing gimmick and, oh my God, mm-hmm. why are you pretending blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But at the end of the day, Tilda was cast in this role as a, as a man, as a, as a man. So, and that is a deliberate decision and whether we fully understand it or not, you know, that doesn't change the fact that it is complicated. It is complex. But I, but I think, I mean, again, like people saying like, oh, like that, that doesn't need to be there or that's distracting or whatever. Again, that's such a, cop-out response to refusing to look at the deeper meaning of yeah, that casting it's such choice. a it's so it's so simplistic and this movie like <laughs> this movie is anything but simple yeah this movie like that that type of reading to me is never going to do this movie justice because this movie clearly there's way more thought put into the themes i mean i i firmly believe that this is a film that i mean look people like it's been what four years since it came out and people are mm-hmm. already like you know this is already considered one of the best horror remakes ever made i f- oh for sure fully believe that given 10 years like it's gonna be considered a classic of horror. i really hope so even mm-hmm. just reading the you know the wikipedia about how like oh it middling reviews some critics i was right? surprised i walked out of this and i was like this I was is also undeniably surprised. a five-star film for me <laughs> it is technically gorgeous everything about it that is suspiria like you know like the dance the 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 use of choreography well, actually and storytelling is so powerful in this even the architecture though like the designs mm-hmm. of the inside of this studio it's so it's like the geometric shapes like mm-hmm. you know you're missing the color but you have the production value here that just looks so striking oh it is for sure oh yeah that that marble floor in the lobby where mm-hmm. it basically seems to be pointing directionally and then of course you know you match that up with something like sarah counting the steps which is of course the homage to the original suspiria it mm-hmm. just it feels like there is so much intentionality and thoughtful purpose put into this movie like everybody's doing their fucking job on this <laughs> to mm-hmm. an A plus degree. Everyone brought their whole ass to this. Joe, I'm so glad you said that the counting steps is an homage to the original Suspiria because literally when it happened last night, I told Ari, I was like, why the fuck? Why didn't she just say it's in the audition room behind this mirror? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, to me, that's sort of the most deliberate and obvious one apart from naming your main character Susie Banyan and sending her to Germany to a dance academy. But... <laughs> I like that it's like, here's your big, obvious homage. It's what all of you fuckers want. I didn't give you Goblin. I didn't give you big, bright colors. But I will give you the step walk. There you go. Yeah, I love that that's what, those are the crumbs he threw and the rest was like, and the rest of this is what I, what but, we want to do. But that's what I'm saying. Look, I, I will always go to bat for a very faithful remake. Um, I, I know some people see a problem with that because they're like, what, what, why are you going to do? I mean, blah, 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 blah. look. Well, I'm glad you're there for those. Look at Texas Chainsaw Massacre, <laughs> which is kind of a very faithful remake. But, no, but it's when you say very faithful, that you can mean, like mean a number of things. Very faithful can mean like narratively faithful, like it follows the mm-hmm. same story beats. It has the same look. It has the exact same character names. 
Like I don't, I wouldn't call Texas Chainsaw very faithful. It's no, literally, do, it literally subverts it too. She chops off his fucking arm. Oh yeah. <laughs> like you know, there's there are so many subversions in addition to the fact that it takes a totally different approach to the look. Right. Yeah. It has a completely two thousand sensibility to yeah. it to me. Which and I think people say they don't like that movie. It's because they don't like a two thousand sensibility. Like sure. it's it's less yeah. so about you're tainting the original than more so I just don't like this. But again, yeah. I, the reactions to this, I it's so funny. I feel like the worst reactions I saw to this, though, were more so in the build-up, the lead-up to the film, because no one mm. went to go fucking see it. <laughs> I think from fans of the original, yes, and then the critical divide, as Ari was kind of suggesting, mm -hmm. that, w I mean, I'm surprised and not surprised, because I think that, like, if you just list the things that people might not like about this movie... If they're fans of the original, they're going to say, oh, the color scheme doesn't work. Where's the more bombastic score? Mm -hmm. Too much focus on the dancing, all the RAF, you know, political stuff. None of that stuff really contributes. I can see all of those points. And yet to me, that it almost suggests that you're starting from a place of negativity as opposed to taking what the film yep. is actively trying to do. Agreed. And I really feel like if you look at the films as companion pieces, like made by someone with a huge reverence for the original, because Luca and Tilda are apparently massive fans of the original, but also wanting to do something different and having a different political ideology that they want to explore. Like, I don't see how you can see all of those things as negatives. Agreed. It's just not that it's doing 77 Suspiria. Well, mm -hmm. I'm going to posit one thing too. I actually think, speaking for myself, but I do think that I wouldn't be surprised if this was on some critics' minds and they were uh, negatively critiquing the film. Mm -hmm. This film is overwhelming, um, narratively and thematically. And I can, I, there were times where visually. I visually, yeah, there were times watching where I was like, oh man, this is dragging or, oh man, this feels kind of pretentious, blah, blah, blah. But it was mm -hmm. also because I was not fully comprehending or understanding everything that was happening in this film. Right. And so I had that kind of a moment where I was like, oh God, this movie is making me feel stupid. <laughs> Stop making me do the work, movie. Yeah, Fuck. No, and, 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 and that's why, though, like, I, I've had this as a, as a three star since the first time, I, the first and only time I saw it. Mm -hmm. And I never, but I never felt comfortable saying, like, having a hard stance on it because I knew I did not get or absorb. You were like, I knew everything. I was wrong. No, well, I mean, not that I was wrong, but like, I, I didn't feel like I fully absorbed this film on a yeah, first viewing. I think, right. so I, I have a, a lovely, really good friend. We have a good friend. And I was talking to them once about this movie and how much I loved it. And they were like, I fucking hate that movie. It is so pretentious. Uh, and, and, and the thing is that this movie is a film, you know, yeah. like quotation marks in that capital there F, is a lot, F. you know, there is a lot of intentional symbolism right. and metaphor and, you know, like there's a lot going on there that the people who created it want you to think about and want you to connect and want you to get. And you can call that pretentious. You can call that, you know, like artistic genius, whatever the fuck you want, but it's, you know, different mileage for different people some people just don't want to they don't want that in their horror films yeah. and that's fine and i and th i think this person has lovely taste and we vibe on other things but i get that and i get uh -huh. why people would say that and i am just particularly someone who really likes a film that like i need to rewatch to fully absorb all the nuances and all the different like touches mm -hmm. that that are you know connect these different pieces together and really say have a message about a time or have a message about a group of people so 
Right. Like, I, I'm not going to sit here and argue with someone who says, well, that movie's too pretentious for me, because it may be. There may, mm. Maybe it's viewed as pretense and it's too much, but like, for or pretension. But like, I am not bothered by it and I like but what it has to offer. T- to me, though, pretension is an attitude because do I think this movie is intellectual? Yes. Do I think right. it's asking us to, to do a lot of extra work? Yes. Yes. Do I think that Guadagnino and company are going, look at how fucking smart we are. We're yeah. so con- no, I don't get that vibe from this movie. No. And that that to me is pretension. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I would never got that from them. Well, and I think the other funny thing is that people who would argue that this movie is too serious or yes, pretentious or elevated and all these other monikers that are just eh, not my favorites. <laughs> yeah. I would argue that you're also deliberately overlooking some of the really great things about this movie like those practical effects, that great gore, like the the creature design look for Marcos alone is worth checking out because, mm-hmm. and, and like we haven't talked about the vagina chest slit, oh. like there's a bunch of really striking shit in this movie, Yeah, but also this is a really fucking horny, like women who want to fuck other women it, I mean, and it, i feel like people don't give the movie enough credit for it being gives sexy like, and horny it gives like hellraiser vibes at times well, that yes. same level of horniness and graphicness because it's like the you know i think of just like even watching the olga scene i told trace i was like that scene so it has to be on some list as one of the top horror scenes in a horror or one of the top scenes in a horror film it is so uniquely done i have never seen something done like that Mm -hmm. and that Mm -hmm. successfully and with that much reliance on like the natural talent of the people in front of the camera Mm -hmm. people were fucking flipping their shit for all of the gabriel acrobatics and it's like um it's also right here on thank you yeah Oh, the, the the image of, of Dakota's chest vagina thing. It leaked early, right? Yeah, yeah. It was actually a publicity still. I feel like they released it at some point oh. or something. But nevertheless, though, what came out literally a year earlier, but Mother, which also right. has <laughs> Jennifer Lawrence with a chest vagina. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is so true. Yeah. I mean, because, of course, there's a, there's a whole thematic piece that we haven't really talked about, about you know, the dance company being physically embodied by its dancers and each person contributing a body part to it. And I do love Tilda Swinton asking Dakota Johnson, do you want to be the sex of this company? And I'm like, girls, get a room. (laughs) I mean, interestingly enough, Susie ultimately says she wants to be the hands. And I think that's because she she wants to be the agent of change, right? Like, mm-hmm. if you look at it, death goes around at the end and sort of finger guns all of the Marcos supporters, and <laughs> that's when the heads start exploding. Yeah. And I'm like, all right, Susie, you got your hands in action. But really, she's also the heart of the company. She's the literal beating heart right. mm-hmm. of the entire enterprise. The reason why they all fucking exist when it comes down to it is her. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the other thing too. Oh god, I, I I really want these other two movies to get made because I would. Was there ever like an? I did he ever have like a, a plan? No, to do that? I think he's actually on the record now as saying like he would never do them, not just because of the financial failure, like Trey said earlier. But I think he's he's like mm, I just don't like have a a huge interest. I would love to see them give it to like another very like visionary director, it, like another one, like it, David Gordon Green, maybe. <laughs> oh my god, it just <laughs> it just sucks though because like, I I almost would have rather them not mentioned uh Mother right. Lacrimarum and Mother Tenebrarum, if only yeah. because they're only there to be like, hey, this is an adaptation of a movie that's the first installment of a thematic trilogy, mm-hmm. and I'm like, okay, but then just make this one standalone, just just have this be Mother Superiora. I'm like, I, I just oh, need see, that. I, the thing is that I see it as a tease. I yeah, I like them bringing it. In 
end because it's actually like a nice nod to the whole three mothers lore yeah. and and it's and it makes sense why there would be an awareness of that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and also like it does kind of close the loop because it stands alone like if they were never to make another one which they very likely they never will someone yeah. won't um i i'm content with this being like self-contained well, i will say because i mean look because suspiria and inferno were i want to say they were less than 10 years apart but then it took like almost 30 years for mother of tears to come out I, and they I, should have just but wrote that off <laughs> i think it would be really interesting if if we ever got a sequel to this or a companion film to this Mm-hmm. If okay, so this one is doing you know divided Germany, divided Berlin. What if then we do kill? Cool, we're gonna do uh, uh, Tenebrarum in the eighties for something else. You could do like Vietnam right. or like some. I mean, I'm just thinking like seventies, mm. like changing the vibe or like Ooh, the yeah. Iraq War or something. Who knows? I mean, look, Ooh. what I'm gonna say is uh, we do no, don't do wars. Do the AIDS crisis and make it a coven of male witches. Ooh, mm. and the mother of t- uh, it's the mother of oh fuck, it's size t- sad is it. Uh, uh, darkness. 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 The mother of darkness is actually a man. See, I don't know about one and one. I don't need one man up in this. I like all these women. He's too much. a man, baby. <laughs> oh my god. My my biggest fear is that you basically just described like a Ryan Murphy premise. I was oh, about to no, say god. that feels I can, too Ryan I can Murphy see him being me. like, "Oh, I just cast Billy Porter in this, and we've got a green light you know on what? Netflix no, next year." No, okay, so the eighties is the Cold War. Yeah. There we go. Oh yeah, yeah. To the Cold War. Mm-hmm. I can and maybe a crossover with uh, the Americans. Oh Carrie, bring Look, Carrie Russell. You in can, here. No, you, we, we we can set it in Moscow. We can do it in Russia. Like keep it over there because the whole thing is it, it's different covens of witches uh, worshiping mm-hmm. or de- deifying different. Leaders. I mean that's that's kind of that's right. the idea of the old movies. I feel like yeah I think, yeah exactly. So we just adapt it for whatever. We I think that's for. a cool idea. If the powers mm-hmm. that be are out there, you know, some of us gays here would and queers here would love to see yes. more of this. <laughs> if you want, <laughs> I just think it's such a rich lore like well, i i'm i love this kind of like storytelling where it's really layered and there's like a lot mm-hmm. of history there that you know it doesn't all get revealed at once i think that it's, yes. it's ne- fascinating nevertheless nevertheless this whole argument of again for guadagnino saying it didn't make any money it bombed blah, blah, blah. i was like look your movie was never going to make 20 million dollars in 300 theaters i'm sorry like it was never ever no movie's going to do that right <laughs> I mean, I think the the mother comparison is actually pretty apt mm-hmm. because yeah. these are the same kind of just very polarizing, very artistic, auteur-driven kind of texts, mm-hmm. and they're just not... I mean, I'm sad to say it, but I don't know that these movies stand a chance with mainstream audiences. I just, I, I just want to... Th- I, I would love for there to be a way for movies like this to kind of be, uh, I guess, like, evaluated differently as far as six what is success because it's just Mm -hmm. like you can't just throw like a really dense weird fucking movie like this out there (laughs) and just expect the masses to just you know well you didn't do halloween kills numbers so sorry suspiria right like it's like come on now like how realistic is that like there needs to be protection for like like these really like cool adventurous horror films i mean nevertheless i'm happy we have it and i'm happy i'm happy finally that i got a chance to rewatch it honestly Mm -hmm. i will rewatch this again probably before the end of the oh i love this i love this movie so much (laughs) i watched it during the pandemic a few times not as much as i watch it follows and and you know, like scream for and stuff but uh, but i i didn't watch this more than you should be watching a two and a half hour movie it's true it's this and pineapple express and then rinse lather repeat hell yeah <laughs> uh, well okay do we have anything else we want to touch on anything specifics any themes we didn't hit 
just want to say lesbians eating chicken i like it (laughs) (laughs) oh my god the way i wanted wings after this movie so bad (sighs) no um no i mean joe earlier did mention the wig i like all of her oh i think think it's fine i actually thought it was a dye job (laughs) i think she looks sexy as fuck she's no i think she looks great it's like the the six finger forehead that distracts me so was there a reason for making her a redhead I don't know. I think it's because it's more striking, but to me, it also anticipates the sort of red bloodbath at the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So what, the only thing I would say is I would love to hear more from like people with a dance background, like to know what Ooh. you thought of this and particularly like the vote performance and just like some of the rehearsal stuff, because it's like, that's some of my favorite and I'm not like in by any means a dance expert or anything, but I love dance. I loved doing it when i could i love watching it so i think like stuff like this really kind of gets me going like mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. it's seeing choreography that's just so perfectly executed just tickles my taint <laughs> just <laughs> makes me really happy so i would love to hear some like background you know some some opinions from folks with the dance background about like what you thought of this and how you thought dance was you know the integration of dance in the story played out for you Yes. Can I piggyback on that? So I would love to hear the stories, but also I feel like we've grown since the last time I've asked for something like this. But if anybody has that dance background and wants to attempt to recreate any of Volk, I would love if you would tag us in that. Ooh, I like that. I definitely saw some people in the Volk rope costumes for Halloween that year. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We will accept cosplay as well as uh, dance montages. Yes, absolutely. Oh, God. Yeah, I can't believe we ever even touched on Volk this entire time. But that, that, I mean, that's the bulk of Act 5 of this movie, and it is hypnotic. It's stunning. Mm -hmm. (sighs) Well, okay. So that is Suspiria 2018. Maybe one day we'll cover the original. Um, yeah. <laughs> there's enough people who love it who would give us a run for our money I know but then we'll have to do the whole trilogy because I have to I really want to be in the same room with you Joe when you watch Mother of <laughs> Tears <laughs> I've listened to so many podcasts about it and everybody's always just like ah, and then the baby over the bridge and then nobody wants to talk about any other parts of the movie <laughs> uh, that, that, that's really the peak of the movie really <laughs> Um, okay, well, before we announce what we're covering next week, I'm Ari. Uh, where can everyone find you on social media? Uh, you can find me on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook at the T H E R E A R I Drew D R E W, and I'm always happy to chat about uh, Suspiria. It follows uh, Scream franchise, any all of my favorites, um, and to chat about just general like high strangeness and horror for people who love mm-hmm. like Bigfoot and stuff, mm-hmm. and the Mothman. Especially, especially the Mothman. If you all ever cover Mothman prophecies, we'll have you. and you don't have me, there, this podcast will be divorced. No yeah, <laughs> I would actually love to revisit that because I have very fond memories of that, and I can't remember if it's actually a good movie. That movie is a vibe. It really is like a, the energy from it is so creepy. But it, anyhow, it's a movie where it, I, it, I think it's one of the creepiest movies I've ever seen. It is really, but but, okay. but 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 like when I saw it as a kid, I thought it was really boring, and I saw it as an adult, and I was like, oh, this is really because if you go and expecting a monster movie yeah. it's right. not it's more it's... like procedural honestly but yeah. it's uh but it's like a really good a special on like 
I don't know, like discovery or ID or something like that. Yeah, it reminds me a bit of like the exorcism of Emily Rose, where it's like you think you're getting one thing and yeah. you, then you'll be disappointed. But if yeah. you Ooh. let it be what it actually is and kind of procedural, you'll enjoy it. And both yeah. and both star Laura Linney. So that's a double feature right there. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Laura Linney. Where's Laura go. Linney been? My God, I know, right? You know what? She can be in our Cold War version. Yes, she can be the oh, lead. <laughs> She's an inverno. <laughs> Oh, man. Well, okay. So if you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at HorrorQueers. Shoot us an email at HorrorQueers at gmail.com. Find us on Letterboxd to keep track of all the films we've covered. Go to our YouTube channel to check out our interviews with various horror filmmakers, as well as our monthly hangouts where we talk about hot-button issues with some of our peers. Uh, If you want to chat with other listeners, please join our Facebook Horror Queers group. And if you really want to show me and Joe, and Ari, actually, some love, Mm -hmm. please (laughs) rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Um, it really helps in search results, and we could always, always use that with people who are just looking for horror podcasts. Sure. If you want even more content, please support the show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash horrorqueers. Uh, this month, we've got episodes on our favorite horror movie sequences and non-horror movies, the social media slasher movie Sissy, the horror prequel double feature you didn't know you needed in Ty West Pearl and Orphan First Kill, And an audio commentary on Wishmaster, just in time for its 25th anniversary. Oh boy. I'll be tuning in for that orphan orphan (laughs) on the Patreon. Yeah, that movie. The movie. It's just us being like, how is this movie so good? Oh my God. (laughs) When I edited that, it was so funny because it's, yeah, it's both of us just going, just like going nuts. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. Uh, But Joe, what are we covering next week? Uh, well, speaking of anniversaries, we're going to celebrate a relatively new one, but it is coming up on five years, and it just so happens to coincide with the season two arrival of Chucky, so we're going to take a look at Cult of Chucky. Ooh, boy! Ooh, I like that one. Yeah, because I feel like a lot of people watch Chucky without watching Cult of Chucky, so... No, it's... That's which like is a mistake. Necessary <laughs> yeah, especially with the show. Big mistake. Huge. 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 <laughs> everyone so until we discuss cult of chucky in the lead up for season two of chucky we can cross out suspiria indeed and cross out horror queers 